Welcome to Hooplecast. I am your host, Matt, and joining me are my newbie co-hosts... Carol. Matt. Mel. And we're a bunch of Hoopleheads. Today we have a guest. Please welcome to the podcast her first appearance, Laurel. Yay! Yay! Hi, everyone. Hello. Glad to join you. Laurel is on our Facebook group, and you should be too. Yes, you. Me? Not you. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I am, I am. (laughs) <laughs> no, the listener. You know who you are, listener. <laughs> Laurel, are you a new Deadwood viewer or are you a veteran? I guess I am a veteran. I just started watching it earlier this year and I'm almost done. So you're... Well, you haven't finished season three, right? No. Okay. Then I'm counting you as a newbie. Okay. Yeah. One of us. Yay. Because you don't know how it ends. <laughs> I don't know how it ends, but I'm one episode shy of the end of the third uh, season. Oh, feelings of uh, bittersweetness? Yes, I'm afraid to watch it because I don't want it to be over. Yeah. Did they know it was going to be their last season? No. Oh, so there could be a cliffhanger. It might be. Yeah, we're going to, when we do this series wrap-up episode, we'll talk about the cancellation, why it happened, what season four would have looked like, that kind of stuff. So I remember the hue and cry when it was canceled. A lot of people were very upset. I hadn't watched the show, but I did hear about it. Yep. yep. We're still not over it. Do you have a favorite character? For the series? For the series so far? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think I tried really hard to like a different character, but I just keep going back to Jane. Uh, Jane. Yeah. Calamity Jane. She's just, yeah. she's so vulnerable and it's, just a really nice way that they've portrayed her in this series. Everybody loves Jean so much. I don't really get why yet. I don't get why either. She <laughs> doesn't do much besides go around being drunk. drunk yeah. And, uh... What's so? It's just her vulnerability that you like. Well, you know she she shows up obviously later. She continues through the series a bit, but um, yeah, I just think you really get if you historically if you look at her character, you know she's following Wild Bill around, and she's this rough and tough gal, and this just really shows some of her relationships in the camp, and mm-hmm. uh, yes, she's walking around drunk most of the time, but she's, in her way, she's befriending people, and and she's also silly, and I don't know, I just, That's like true. I said, I try to come back to a different character to like, but she's so far as my favorite. Mm-hmm. That doesn't surprise me at all. I'm, I'm really surprised that you guys didn't aren't like... I'm not gravitating towards her. I, don't, like, I like her. I yeah. don't dislike her. Yeah. But I, oh. She's not my favorite. I don't my dislike f- her, but I find it hard to like pinpoint something she's done besides maybe like help the doc with with the plague. She patients. is. She's a nice like you know. She does like you're right, Laurel. Like she befriends everyone, and she, she's a nice addition to the camp. Mm-hmm. I suppose, but I just don't. I I don't know. I, she just talks to people. She doesn't. She doesn't get things moving. Like she doesn't make plots go forward. <laughs> I don't know. No, but she she's got <clears throat> yeah, she's got a complex kind of thing. I think that might be what one of the things Laurel was looking at. I'm not sure, but you know, she's got that uh very don't get near me. I'm, you know, rough and tough and, you know, yada 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 and she's a big marshmallow inside. I don't know if I've ever picked her as my character of the week. I think we, I think we might have very early on. I think so. I think, I think the charm—I think that charm of the early 
days of, of her character is kind of worn off, and I don't think she's changed much since then. She hasn't really grown. The other way to look at I, I look at it is she she provides kind of a balance to EB's type of comic relief. So he's comic, but we all hate him. And <laughs> she goes around kind of goofy and... Carol, like you said, she's marshmallow inside, but she doesn't want anyone to know that. So she tries. She's just very awkward. Yeah. Like I try to picture Jane today in modern times, and it's just she would probably just be sitting on the side of the road, I guess, talking to herself. But <laughs> she's funny, and I know she doesn't move the plot along very much. But yeah, she, and I, you know, my second would be Doc. I love Doc Cochran too. Yeah, he's my favorite. I can tell you that neither one of you, Matt nor Mel, has picked Jane as your favorite character. Okay. Yeah, I think I, I tried. I think in the beginning I tried not to, be just because everybody else was. <laughs> oh, okay. It's just a rebel. I wanted to be a <laughs> rebel. <laughs> uh, I've got some general feedback. We got this brief feedback from Russell. He says, "Lovejoy!" Exclamation mark. <laughs> OMG, I'm behind, but only just listened to the bonus Lovejoy episode. As a massive fan, I was so annoyed. Uh-oh. Oh. Your host didn't know much about the show. Please, please, <laughs> please do another Lovejoy bonus, and I'll attend as a Lovejoy number one fan. Loving Hooplecast, great stuff. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, I just listened, uh, re-listened to that bonus episode, and I thought Shane did a fine job, so. Oh, was he counting Shane as the host, uh, host or you? I th- I assumed he was counting Shane. Okay. I thought I thought you meant maybe that you were a horrible host. Shame <laughs> on you, Matt. I appointed Shane the host of that one. Your host didn't know much about the show. Well, of course I wouldn't know. Uh, I admitted that right off right off the bat. I admitted that, so I don't. Yeah, really know. I, I would assume they were talking about Shane, which I mean, Shane knew. Yeah, yeah. maybe there were a couple things he had to look up, but it also had been a while. So yeah, it's it was it, it aired what in the eighties or whatever. So. Well, I mean, I have no problem if someone wants to volunteer to, you know, come on and do something with us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're not watching another Lovejoy episode, though. So, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Russell. That was a that was a one time thing. But if you do like Lovejoy, I recommend that you track down. Uh, it's a podcast called Brovejoy. Mm-hmm. It is a podcast about Lovejoy, hosted by two brothers. Brovejoy. Seriously? Yes. <laughs> Wow. You, are you? You're not kidding. I am not kidding. Um, I even have their theme song queued up. All right, I don't know if it's their theme song, but I'll here I'll play it for you. Oh my god! Brother Joy, brother Joy, brother Joy, I want to be a brother Joy, brother Joy, brother brother. What? That was crazy. Was, was that like a takeoff on um? Oh, what was that? Their other, like, theme was basically a riff on the Flintstones. It was, bruv, joy, bruv, joy, bruv, joy. <laughs> so this this sounded like Macho Man. Y-N-C-A. Yeah, Macho Man. That's yeah, what that I was trying to Oh, maybe. Yeah. The village people. Like, right. It sounded like Macho Man. It's random. <laughs> I was, In a creepy way. Yeah, All I was I going was through nightmares. my head trying to figure out what it was. Yeah, Macho Man. All I heard was a nightmare. <laughs> You're gonna dream about that tonight. It's gonna be like just a couple of random <laughs> dudes just like whispering "bruv joy" in your ear, <laughs> echoey voice. Yes. <laughs> uh, they've only done 15 episodes, and there's like 70 of them. So, guys, bruv joy, gotta get on it. Step yeah. it up. Step up your game. The world right. needs more bruv joys. <laughs> <laughs> and I got some audio feedback that I'm gonna play now. 
Hi guys, my name's Hassan, my friends call me Husso, and I'm a Deadwood fan from Western Sydney, Australia. Nice. All right. Um, I've only just recently got into the show, um, and I think without having uh, friends or family who are also into the show, I'm, I was uh, definitely in need of an outlet to discuss it, and um, I think by the time I was up to, um, uh, I think in Series 2, the last few episodes... I've come across your podcast, and that's been um, yeah very entertaining. Um, so I just like wanted to send a bit of feedback to you guys. Just want to say it's been uh, great listening, and I'm working my way through your podcasts. Um, and yeah, all of you guys certainly offer and add a lot of value to the show, and it's been great. Um, Matt, Matt A, you're definitely a smooth operator. I can tell you've done this before. Uh, <laughs> Mel and Matt, what a cool couple, bouncing ideas off each other. Um, <laughs> Especially when you go off on those tangents, usually triggered by Mel, um, and it's quite no. psychedelic at times. I think there was a, a, like um, a favourite of mine going back. I think in season one, it was the um, Seth Bullock riding a flying rainbow unicorn or unicorn with an impaled Jack McCall on the front, <laughs> while it's farting out. Rainbows. I thought that was quite good. Um, and Carol, definitely appreciate and enjoy the, um, I think, thoughtful and measured responses and, and, and the, the historical context that you give um, for a lot of the scenes and, 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 and so on. So I think that was really good. So, guys, thanks again. Uh, you've really made my trips to and from work uh, each day uh, very entertaining. In my head, I translate that to um, Mel, you're insane. Carol, thank you for being sane. <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe Carol, you know, kind of boring, but that's okay. <laughs> no, that was a great voicemail, though. Just out of the blue. Yeah, just out of the blue. I love that. Kind Excellent. Of stuff. Now, yeah, did so he say? Did he say his friends call him Hustle? Ha- I think Hasso. 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 Okay. Hasso. Like H A S O. Okay. Okay. It just it just reminds me of all the nice uh, Twin Peaks podcast emails we used to get. Yes. Yeah. It's nice when you get feedback and yeah. and, and like you get a, opinions on what you're doing in it. Sometimes it can just feel like you're doing this in a vacuum. You're like, hey, why am I even doing this? <laughs> yeah. But but it's know. nice when you hear from the listeners and you know that they really enjoy it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I have to admit, I just enjoy talking to you guys about this. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Besides that, but I mean, going, you're purely doing it for self. But reasons. I mean, I mean, going to yeah. the, I mean, going to the totally. trouble of recording it and editing it and all mm-hmm. that stuff and yeah. advertising it. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you guys do a lot more work. Well, I, I don't for this one, but yeah, for other ones I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's nice when the listeners just randomly like send something and. Mm. And it's funny because I listen to podcasts on my way back and forth from work too. So it's it's kind of like oh wow somebody's listening to us while he's going back to forth to work just like I do. Your voice is coming out of a car stereo, presumably in uh, Australia. That's crazy wow. to think about. Mm-hmm. That is weird. And, and I want to tell Hassan something. Uh-oh. I want to tell him my my musings are acidless. <laughs> <laughs> She's, she's just high in her own brain. <laughs> yes, her own brain chemistry. Yes. <laughs> I wonder how long his commute is because if it's like ten minutes, he would take him like two weeks to get through one of our episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. For our readers' theater 
I have something uh, holiday-related. Oh. Okay. Related to the holiday that just passed, and by the time that this is released, it'll have been a week later. A little editorial about Thanksgiving. <laughs> that most American of holidays, according to this, according <laughs> to this article, uh, read appropriately enough by Chris of <laughs> The Last Word Podcast. <laughs> Thanksgiving, an editorial. Black Hills Daily Times... November 28th, 1877. From the days of our earliest recollection to the present, Thanksgiving has lingered in memory as one of the brightest events of each succeeding year. It is a day around which cluster the dearest and sweetest thoughts, for they are those of our kith and kin, who at this annual period assemble from various parts of the continent and gather around the old hearthstone in a happy circle to congratulate each other upon individual blessings, or exchange that sympathy for misfortune which true love ever begets. It is a hallowed day, dear to every American heart, for the custom is purely American. A day full of tender recollections of purest associations. A day that seems to give the one touch of nature that makes the whole world kin. To many of us, the morrow will not be the pleasantest day in the year, for we shall be absent from the dear ones at home, aloof from that congenial celebration that in years past has been so gladly entered into. There will be no family gatherings, no merry prattle of loved ones, but instead... We must dwell in the past, which by comparison with the forlorn present must create a decidedly gloomy condition. Thanksgiving will be generally observed as a season of pleasure, which will be inaugurated this evening by a soiree under the auspices of the Star Social Club and an excellent performance at Langridge Theatre. Divine service will be held in the Congregational Church tomorrow morning, and in the evenings a grand ball will be given at Leeds City by the Miners' Union. How many men have we heard lately wishing they were at home in the States where they could get a good old-fashioned Thanksgiving dinner of turkey, chickens, and plenty of good vegetables with a top-off of pumpkin and mince pies, puddings, apples, nuts, and raisins? We can hardly understand this longing for home on that account, as everyone could go to Van Danica and McHugh's IXL restaurant on Main Street and get one of the finest Thanksgiving dinners that ever was or will be given in the hills. It will be their last holiday dinner, as the restaurant goes into the hands of Ben Hazen, Esquire, the well-known proprietor of the Crook City Hotel. The bill of fare consists of soups, fish, roast and boiled meats, both domestic and wild, entrees of all kinds of small game, etc., vegetables of all descriptions, pastry and puddings till you can't rest. We advise everyone to waltz down a block and try it. Quote. I do like these things, Matt. <laughs> You're so ridiculous. I wanted the first one. I wanted him to shut up. <laughs> oh, wait, what? He's just so in love with Thanksgiving. I'm like, shut up already. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get it because you're not American and the custom is purely American. <laughs> yeah. Nobody else has ever had Harvest Festival. No. It just sa- almost sounded like, like he had like a sexual attraction to Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> He was going on about it that much and that passionately. All those sexy pies. (laughs) (laughs) Sentimentality was very big back then. Yeah, and the second one just sounded like, almost like E.B. wrote an ad for his restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'll be glad to know that when the IXL restaurant is turned over to Ben Hazen, he he does a good job with his Christmas dinner, because I I have one for that, too. Oh, all right. (laughs) Well... Well, that makes me feel a lot better about the people of Deadwood being able to go out for holiday dinners. In December 1877, yes. Don't, yeah. don't worry. Yeah. 
the IXL restaurant and its bill of fare in good hands. Oh, good. So was it like a more common thing for people back then to go out to a restaurant for a holiday dinner? That's a good question. You don't really do that here. No, like that's not something like usually it's a family thing. Mm. I'm I'm just guessing. This is just a guess on my part, but weren't there still an awful lot of single men in Deadwood at that point? Yeah, that's a good point. So it wouldn't be, um, you know, getting the family together and and having somebody cook a full dinner and all of that. This is episode 22, Advances None Miraculous, written by Sarah Hess, directed by Dan Minahan, original air date, May 8th, 2005. Minutes after the events of the previous episode, Hostetler is telling Fields that it won't matter if trash like Steve got run over by a horse, the white men of this camp will lynch them. And then they see Seth carrying William, yelling for Martha. He's The boy's carried over to the dock's cabin. The way he yells for her is, is odd. Mrs. Bullock! <laughs> Instead of Martha. Well, you know, it's called her Mrs. Bullock anyways. Yeah. That was not uncommon at the time. Fields mentions that among the white men, the only one that would stand up for them would be John Brown, the famous abolitionist. Do you guys uh, up up there in Canada know about John Brown? It, the raid at Harper's Ferry? That was something that was taught to us in elementary school. I don't believe so. John Brown's body is a moldering in the grave. Nope. <laughs> nope. He uh he led a uh he tried to lead a slave revolt um back just before the Civil War and didn't work out. Aww. He ended up uh hung, I believe. I believe he mm-hmm. was caught at Harper's Ferry and, yeah. and hung. Yeah, he and twenty one followers went to uh like an ammunition depot and they were gonna try and steal arms and lead a insurrection, but Robert E. Lee surrounded them and captured them and he ended up being executed for treason against the commonwealth of virginia mm. screw you robert e lee <laughs> and a lot of people have said that that raid did a lot to hasten the coming of the civil war because it made the north sympathetic to john brown mm. and the south of, of course uh against the abolitionist movement uh robert e lee wrote in his notes that he believed that john brown was insane <laughs> fanatic or a madman and that the blacks who helped him in his raid were forced by Brown. Oh, wow. Forced from their homes in the neighborhood, and as far as I could learn, gave him no voluntary assistance. He uh, was kind of a crazy person, too. So Who was? John Brown. Oh. So he was actually crazy? Well, there's debate if he was... Um, he was kind of a firebrand, and he was very much like, uh, God told me to do this. Uh-huh. Um this is against slavery is against God's will. Therefore it's okay for me to uh, murder people. So he was was super violent. Yeah. He was, he was definitely a lot. A lot of people have indicated that they thought he was a little nutty. Crazy old John Brown. Hey guys, let's go to the ammunition plant. (laughs) Well, not quite. (laughs) Next.
<laughs> so, recreation of the event. <laughs> Let's start an insurrection. <laughs> I'm I'm posting this uh, fantastic painting of him in the Facebook group. Does he have googly eyes? <laughs> no, but he looks like a crazy person. <laughs> and he, I mean, he was a, oh, he was a dangerous guy. Yeah, he was. Please, totally please, please enlarge that picture. I mean, there's, there's also kind of a, um, an opinion that whether or not you you agree that he was right in his actions, that he was kind of a terrorist. Yeah, mm-hmm. he, yeah, he was a hero to you know a lot of people who you know like abolitionists who were not too worried about people getting killed. And he was a terrorist as far as people on the other side. It was, he was a very divisive character. Mm-hmm. But, Didn't he also put his sons kind of in, in his crusades? A few, last several of his sons, I think, during his. I think you're right. Yeah, everything yeah. I've read about him, it's either he, four of his four. sons or five of, of his sons were involved in whatever he, he was, was doing. Yeah, and then a lot, most of them died in the cause. Mm hmm. Right. There's a book that I've been wanting to read for a long time called Cloud Splitter, and it's written from the perspective of Owen Brown. And uh, he, he set up this kind of a unreliable narrator, and it's like a f- historical fiction, hmm. but it's John Brown from the perspective of his son. Hmm. I've been and wanting you to read that for was, a while. He was a big enough character that, you know, when I started um, Battle Hymn of the Republic, somebody made a whole, rewrote the whole song about making about John Brown. Mm. So, and I don't remember all the words right now, but uh, it's easy enough to look up. But that that I started with John Brown's body is moldering in the grave is uh, the beginning of it. One of his famous quotes: "I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood." And he was right, unfortunately. Yep. And and he was, and so you get Fields here saying, "Well, there is one good white man, John Brown, and Hostetler's like." Sure, because there's nothing else going on with John Brown. He's just all, all you know, uh, feeling that he's well, not, he's, he's not crazy, or he's not in it for his own motivations, or he doesn't like feeling like a martyr. Sure, yeah, John Brown, he'll come to our rescue. Well, especially since he's been dead for a while by that point. Well, true, but it's the idea, I think. Yeah, of. yeah, yeah. Is was he mentioning the name of John Brown sarcastically, or mm. like, oh, John Brown will help us? Hostetler says, still ain't a white man on earth gonna stand up against a ropeness now, is there? Phil says, John Brown would've. Hostetler goes, oh, would've. He goes, yeah. come on. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody knows he's Looney Tunes. And did. Well, especially with that <laughs> accent of his. Yeah. <laughs> what accent are you talking about? Sai <laughs> orders his flunkies to take Moe's to the Shazami. What's he using the Shazami for, then? Like, I don't, just to hide his, his dealings. <laughs> it's like, the chaise of me is his rug that he pushes things under. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was kind of wondering that myself. I guess because, didn't he order it after they were already taking the kid to Doc Co- Cochran's? Yeah, I think so. So, I guess he figured it'd be too crowded over there. Also, he knows the building is empty. Yeah. And Joni's not doing anything but sitting in the dark, so... We'll give her yeah. something to do. Kind of shows her that he still owns her. Yep. He can just impose on her at any point. 
Yeah, I got that too. I agree. Jane knocks at the livery. She wants Hostetler to look after the horse as she's staying in Deadwood. We also learn that Jane spotted Fields bringing that wild horse into camp, which suggests that others probably saw him too. Hostetler isn't going to beg for mercy and makes a move towards his gun, presumably to kill himself, but Fields stops him and suggests that they just run away. Yeah, yeah. for a few, didn't you say for a few hours? Six hours west? Something, something. like that, yeah. Well, they're going to ride out of camp. Yeah. At least until it boils over. Mm-hmm. It's just not a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I like Jane. Do <laughs> you got that horse in there? The one with the humongous dong? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, so she was trying to warn them? Or, I mean, was she really clueless or was she trying to warn them? No, I, I think, think she, she just clueless. wanted her own horse, didn't she? So she could leave? No, no she was going to board her horse because she was going to stay. Right. Oh. And, okay. and I think she was clueless because until she went and saw Tom. Oh, right. Right. You know, she really didn't yeah. know what had happened. So she didn't she know. Was, that was the impression that I got that she didn't know because yeah. she was her, not just not around. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, not everybody is, is in the middle of town all at the same time. So, but I thought it was kind of interesting that for once nobody at the beginning, there were all these people that looked like they should be dead. And well, at least two of them and neither one was dead. Mm. They were both just both looked like they were mortally wounded, yeah. mortally injured. Maybe they'll come back next. Se- the, uh, William and Mose will both come back next season as uh, preachers. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> like what's his face? That was interesting too to have that bookend, or just yeah. ghosts. Yeah. yeah, preaching ghosts. I'm wondering whether Mose is going to be okay. Whether he's actually going to survive. I don't know. They did have think- a minister show up who had been left for dead. No sure was mm-hmm. going to die. I think Mose Mose is probably going to live, and William will die. Well, William, I think William's dead. William does. Yeah, he seems pretty much dead at the end. Oh, does yeah. he? Okay, I couldn't tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I had I to think- watch that part a lot just to see because everyone was just giving each other looks, and then you see Saul walking down the street, and I think that's when everyone's figuring out that he did die. That's yeah, what I, th- I thought, but I wasn't sure because it kind of ended just not saying anything. Right. When when Seth was outside at the end, I thought, okay, that's it, because I don't think he was going to get up and walk away from that kid until he was dead. Yeah. Yeah. In Al's office, Trixie is distraught over William. Al says, shut up already. Al wants Alice to sign these documents and leave, but Alice refuses. She was promised an escort from the camp. Al tells Dan to fetch Hawkeye and the Jew. And then while Merrick was canvassing through Blazanoff's belongings looking for his acacia gum, he found a telegram saying that Commissioner Jerry is en route to Deadwood. This is going to sound terrible, but who is Hawkeye? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. I remember. Matt, why don't you tell us then? He's Adam's buddy. He doesn't say much. I don't. That's probably why I don't remember him. Okay, so he's just that guy that hung out with Adams a lot? Yeah. He got beat up by Dan? By Dan. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't remember. Because he couldn't beat up Adams. Mm-hmm. All right. I thought that might, might be who it was, but... Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, remember he's, he stopped to save some stranded sisters? No. No. <laughs> also, he call, do you remember that he calls his uh, penis uh, Willie Johnson? <laughs> no, oh, Johnson. I remember that. No, he doesn't call his penis Willie Johnson. That's our feedbacker. <laughs> 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 he calls it um, Johnny Roger, right? 
Yes. Johnny Roger. I don't know. I'm sorry, Will. I vaguely remember that. I can't keep straight what you guys do with those things, but anyway. All right. (laughs) What, penises? What? Everybody's (laughs) names for their penis, you know? Oh! I still got a name mark. You're going to get, like, a birth certificate for it and everything? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't name my car, much less parts of my body, but, you know. It is, so... Acacia gum, also known as gum arabic, this natural edible adhesive is harvested from the sap of acacia trees. Merrick probably keeps it on hand because it makes newspaper print more cohesive and permanent. It's also found in shoe polish, paint, pharmaceuticals, and most importantly, soft drinks. It binds the sugar to the drink, otherwise the sugar would crystallize and fall to the bottom. Hmm. Aren't they doing more stuff with acacia now that uh, is like supposed to be some kind of miracle thing or one of those? Maybe I've got it mixed up with something else. Well, it is a huge economy in Sudan. They yeah. are the world's biggest producer of the gum. They make about oh. 70 to 80% of it. Wow. And in 1997, when the U.S. government brought sanctions against Sudan for giving refuge to Islamic terrorists, lobbyists protested, and as a result, the only product exempt from the export ban was the gum Arabic. The U.S. said such a ban would have hurt our country's food industry. Oh. Uh-huh. Of course. Okay. Or the soft drink industry, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Soft drinks aren't food. Yeah. I know a lady, every morning she drinks a Diet Coke. Maybe Ugh. two of them. Gross. And of course, Chris, who read our Reader's Theater. Thanks again, Chris. He drinks his Pepsi Max. Yes. Every morning? or <laughs> No, just so he can stay through all, all the wee hours of the night. Stay up. Mm-hmm. Well, he does a lot of podcasting with those of us in different time zones. That's right. Dan runs into the hotel looking for Hawkeye. He's not been there for three days. E.B. offers to shine Dan's shoes, wash his clothes, which causes Dan to grab E.B. by the collar and scream, Did you fucking hear me, Hawkeye? This makes <laughs> E.B. sad. What was up with E.B.? He, he, was being was... A he was being a Shakespeare character again, lurking behind yeah. something and, and just, um, what do you call it? Solilo- just talking to himself, soliloquying. Is that what it's called? Soliloquizing. Yeah. So is that the right way? Equalizing. Equalizing. Yeah, uh, but he was, I mean, was he trying to, because he got all upset, like, oh, if you don't, if you aren't looking for something, I'm just a clerk, right? Was he just trying to rub it in that he was this clerk and, you know, I can have your shoes shined or, you think that's what he was up to? Because it was just like, where is this coming from? I thought he felt, I thought he was as normal Therefore, as weird as usual. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm the bear, you know. <laughs> and it was Dan who acted throughout this like he was unhinged. Mm-hmm. We know I, that we know that Dan's very emotional. Yeah, I mean, I got the feeling that the whole point of this episode was just how an event can affect the whole town and and people's state of mind and make people on edge that. An event that doesn't directly even affect them, per se. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they were, everybody was acting a little weird throughout. At the Bella Union, Jack the bartender reports that Khan and Leon are delayed dragging Moe's to the Shazami because Khan sustained an injury. Hugo Jari comes in, he needs to see Bullock, but Sai and Wilcott say that is a terrible idea right now. Yep. What happened to Khan? He gave himself a hernia. He's yeah, he's got hard. a hernia. Yeah, but that was, was, did he get that injury last episode or this episode from pulling Moe's? Pulling Moe's on the sled. 
Because Goes is so heavy. Yes. Yep. Dan spots Saul waiting outside the doc's cabin. He demands Saul come to the gym right now. Saul tries to say when I can, but Dan threatens to carry him through the camp like a turtle with its leg wiggling. Oh. He definitely got the feeling that he could do that. Oh, for sure he could. Yeah. I guess uh, Saul senses that there's probably nothing to be done at this point regarding William anyway, so why make a scene uh, and be carried through the camp? So he's like, all right, I'll come. I'll just come. Fine. I consent. Yeah. Dan spots Silas riding in and tells him, Al wants to see you. Well, Silas has to take a shit, but it's one of those uh, quick kinds. So. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of funny how single-minded Dan is about getting Al's orders done. Mm. There's, like, no room for discussion or, like, compromise. Well, everybody's kind of like that with Al's orders. Mm. Think about it. Yeah. Except for Johnny. Last episode... Johnny told Seth, Al needs you to witness some wrist business, and Seth says, not right now, so Johnny just waits outside. Right. But he, you know, he couldn't threaten Seth, but he's not going back without him. So, <laughs> you know, got that one mi- uh, mindset, you know, well, I'll stand here and stare at you until you come with me. I just pictured Johnny walking back to the to the saloon with Sheriff Bullock flung over his shoulder <laughs> with his legs kicking in the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would happen. Uh, Johnny's just carrying Seth out of the dinner table. No! I want to go back to dinner with my family! (laughs) We get a little soliloquy from Jane. She's looking for a bottle she hid during her drinking days. She doesn't find the bottle, but she finds Tom Nuttall hiding in an alley with snot dripping down his nose. Yeah. Which is gross, but so sad. That's very yeah. sad. He asks, do you know whose horse it was? Jane doesn't know what he's talking about. Then he starts to sob. Aww. Oh, I feel really bad for Tom. I felt horrible for him I this entire too. episode. Yeah. He's taking and, it real hard. Yeah, it's totally not his fault. It's it's nobody's fault. It's Yeah, it's just a know. freak incident. Yeah. I thought Leon Rippey did an awesome job in this scene. I... I love the scene. I also love Jane. How you know she's a blabbermouth. She 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 talks a lot. She's she's drunk. She she rambles, but she senses that this guy is like wounded, and she just listens to him and lets and him that, grieve. And what she was saying when she found him sounded like you know she's um she's coming off the bottle and she was trying to talk herself into not drinking anymore. So she's very caring. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. In the doc's cabin, Martha sits over an unconscious William. William's eye movements are no longer coordinated, which suggests to the doc brain damage. Seth wonders if it might comfort William to hear his mother's voice. Doc says it might. His father's voice, too. That was a nice comment. A nice lie. <laughs> no, <laughs> he probably but... can't hear anything, really. No, but I mean, it's it's nice that he included Seth, I mean. Yeah, yeah. 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 And at that point, them talking to him, even if does nothing for the boy, could do something for them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, it's pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. The, the doc is not a stupid man, that's for sure. No. No. David Milch says in the stories of the Black Hills, sometimes you walk with a person by not seem, seeming to, 
by standing back. That's what happens in the scenes after Bullock's son William's hit by the horse. Doc Crockeran walks with Seth and Martha Bullock. He tells Bullock that hearing his mother's voice might help the boy, and hearing his father's voice might help him too. Mostly he stands back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he knows there's nothing he can do for him. Yeah, like that scene where he just kind of came by and looked in the window. He totally avoided going in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Saul is really irritated that he's been summoned to the gem, and wouldn't you know it, but Trixie has run back to her master, Al's fucking lapdog. She tells him, I'm nobody's lapdog, and that includes you, Mr. Star. Just because you teach me numbers doesn't mean I have to brief you on where I'm going, who I'm talking to. True. Yep. Al knows about the situation with William, but Al wouldn't have summoned Saul if he didn't have need for him. Also, the horse's piss is unspecial. <laughs> <laughs> what is the horse's piss? Cheap whiskey? Cheap whiskey, I would imagine. Okay. There's also a drink called the Horse's Piss made with two-thirds cup rye whiskey, one-third cup sour mix, one-third cup 7-Up. Have you tried it? No. I don't think they had 7-Up back then. (laughs) No, Uh, I'm not talking about Matt as if he's in the past. (laughs) (laughs) When you traveled back to 1877, did you drink Horse's Piss? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's also a really awful drink called the Flaming Horse Piss. <laughs> what? You set that whole 7-Up concoction on fire? Close. <laughs> it's one It's one ounce Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey. Half ounce Monster Energy drink. Ooh. One ounce lemon juice. Two ounce pale ale. Half ounce Devil Springs vodka. Mm. Light it on fire, blow it out, and slam it. <laughs> oh, sounds grotesque. Yeah, it sounds awful. I thought that that whole exchange between Trixie and Saul was, you know, I mean, whenever either one of them is tense about something, they always end up kind of at each other's throats. Yeah. It doesn't ever get super uh, scary or... No, yeah. Yeah, I I think they their heads cool off pretty quick. I think they're both just kind of frustrated by their relationship. Yeah. It's not really... Here or there, it's not, you know, Trixie's afraid of it, Saul doesn't know what it is, you know, it makes them tense. Mm. And they've had this argument before. Yeah. He's controlling her. He's teaching her stuff, therefore now he feels like he owns her. Yeah. Yeah, and then they get over it. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He usually backs off. (laughs) There was a commentary for this episode with John Hawks and Paula Malcolmson, that's uh, Saul and Trixie. She says that the line, have the horse's piss, was improv because the whiskey that Paula handed to John was a prop that had been sitting on the set for years and was considered by many to be undrinkable. (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) So she just improvised, uh, have the horse's piss, it's on special, and David Milch was on set and he liked it, so they kept it in. That is amazing. That's hilarious, yeah. There was a cut before he drank it, so I hope he drank something else. They probably switched it. Give him a flaming horse's horse's piss. No, no, grotesque. Don't give, yeah, don't give that to anyone. <laughs> and when I traveled back to 1877, I did not bring Monster Energy Drink with me. So. <laughs> you would have blew their minds. Poor thought is everything. They they all would have got so much more done. <laughs> Remember when Apu stayed awake for so long that he imagined himself like a hummingbird? Yes. <laughs> He was buzzing around the quickie mart. I'm just imagining everyone in Deadwood buzzing around like hummingbirds. (laughs) (laughs) 
they also said on the commentary that they drank so much caffeinated tea to make themselves look jittery that they became very sick of it, and Paula threw up from smoking too many cigarettes. Oh, wow. <laughs> they don't have fake movie cigarettes? I, it's probably the same. It's probably what she meant. Oh, okay. She smoked hey. so many of those that she threw up. Gross. Yeah. I know, there was a whole thing about um, when James Marsters was playing Spike, and he uh, he stops. He was smoking when they first started, and then he was trying to stop smoking. We tried switching to like herbal cigarettes and stuff like that, and he was saying how the smoke just doesn't look the same on on the on the film. So he was. That's what I've heard. He's very disappointed. It's been two hours, and Leon and Khan still haven't gotten Moe's to the Shazami. Khan has suffered some sort of injury to his groin. Maybe he'll try to pull that sled for a while. Nay, better not. <laughs> Alice would not put it past Al to have arranged the incident in the thoroughfare in order to draw the sheriff away so that he could murder her. Mm. Except that he could murder her at any time, right? Yeah, yes. that's what I kept thinking. Like, seems like seems like she's been sitting in that chair for three episodes. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Has it been just two, or has it been three? I can't no, remember. No, it's just been two. She she sat down in the chair at the end of the last episode to sign the documents, and then Seth was called away. But she has yeah. been in that chair before, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah when she was first trying to make a deal with uh, Al. Yeah. Was, yeah. I found this quote from Alan Seppenwell, the TV critic who's been who Ina has been posting comments from um, on our Facebook group. And Alan Suppenwall writes, I watched both of these episodes right in a row for this rewatch, and it's at least the third time I've watched each, counting their original airing. And I'll be honest with you, I still don't entirely follow Al's plan with Miss Isringhausen, even though I know he's right. Sometimes Milch contorts things a bit too far past my understanding, but the actors usually sell it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Definitely true of a later scene <laughs> that we're going to come to. Mm. Well, wasn't he... Isn't he, I'm trying to remember, isn't he having her sign something that, where she basically takes, where she admits to the whole plan, and in exchange he gives her $5,000 or whatever it was for her to disappear? Yeah, she's, she's putting down in writing that Brom Garrett's relatives hired the Pinkertons to extort Alma and pin a murder on her so that they could take her gold. Right, And she's yeah. writing it all down uh, so that they have this proof so that they can't try it again. Right. Silas enters and she asks him if he's come to kill her. He wouldn't balk at the chance. <laughs> Alice signs the document, but when Al challenges the authenticity of her signature compared to that of the hotel register, she signs it again. And she <laughs> leaves the camp unescorted. I really enjoyed that scene, just the looks between her and uh, Silas. I thought yeah. that was priceless. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you bitch. I hate yeah. you so much. Yes. <laughs> And I love her expressions, too, because she's very stern and resolved. But when she sees him walk in, she's like, oh, he could just, they could just kill me right now. And there's like uh -huh. this fear. And then it just passes again. It just passes because she's got to stay strong. And I love yeah. that when he, when Al tells her, uh, I wish I had five like you. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah. Did you guys already talk about the fact that these two show up in a show together, Ian McShane and Sarah Paulson, um, in American Horror Story? Ian McShane was in American Horror Story? Yeah, so, uh, season two. What? He played he Santa Claus. Yeah, he played Santa Claus. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, that's right. I it was so disturbing. Yes, it was disturbing. And so, yeah, and Sarah Paulson has been in most of those. Yeah. Huh. It was a sign of times to come. 
<laughs> I forgot to read this quote from Titus Welliver a couple episodes ago when it would have been more appropriate, but I'll read it now. In the second season, Adams has a relationship with Ms. Isringhausen, a Pinkerton agent masquerading as a nanny. David wanted me lying on the bed at the opening of the scene, sort of looking at the ceiling. David said, this is a guy who is waiting for his life to happen. He would physically appear to be inactive, but he's waiting. He's waiting for something to happen. Well, in a way, it's appropriate because this episode is kind of all about waiting for things to happen. John Hawk said on the commentary that Milch told him that Saul seeing the tutor leave Al's office and strut from the gem would further confuse Saul because why is this tutor meeting with Al? His whole world does not make sense right now. Mm-hmm. Has he even seen this woman before? Yeah. He's... But as far as he knows, it's just the tutor that Alma fired. Right. That's all he'd know about her at this point. And it would be very inappropriate for the tutor to be in the gem. So he just sees her leave and it's like, what is going on right now? Yeah. Do you guys think we'll see Miss Isringhausen again? Uh, I don't think so. There shouldn't be a reason for her to come back now yeah, that she I has don't. money. Yeah, I agree. I don't think so. Well, you're right. She's not. This is it for her. <laughs> <laughs> good. And I was like, good. I hated that bitch. <laughs> yeah, I did hate that bitch. <laughs> She was, like, she played a good character, though. Like, she did a good job, but I'm not dissing the actress, but I just hated that bitch. Hated the character. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that there was a female equivalent to Al, at least for a time. Yeah. She went toe-to-toe with Al. Yeah. That's it was pretty kind of, impressive. A it was lot interesting. of men can't even do that. Yeah. No. Joni and Jane are at the Shazami when there is a knock. Mose has arrived on the sled. At the number 10, Steve is drinking bullet bourbon. Not the official whiskey of Hooplecast. As he monologues, he went to the livery seeking answers, but the doors were shut and there was a sign back in three hours. Rutherford wants to get the boy's mother a white satin comforter. Tom Nuttle enters and he tells Harry Manning to get that velocipede out of his sight. That was so sad. Yeah. And we don't let racists drink the official uh, whiskey of Hooplecast. No, we don't. You're drinking bullet bourbon. (laughs) Yeah, when you go back in time to the filming of Deadwood and, you know, make sure that uh, they keep that up. <laughs> yeah. I will make doubly sure. <laughs> Matt's the time traveler. He has to be. Mm. I think I brought that back with me because according to Wikipedia, it was introduced in 1999. But that was the <laughs> bottle. I Like, I recognized the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I felt so bad that the bike was ruined, though. Like, it's... It was such a symbol of happiness, and now he's just going to toss it. You know, yeah. it's awful. It made the whole camp happy. Yeah. Briefly. Briefly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the accident had nothing to do with the bike. It's not like the kid fell off the bike or anything. No, no. It's just a but, reminder. Yeah. They were going to tow some clouds on that bike. Oh. Breaks my heart. And, of course, what's his, the racist guy, Steve? Steve. Steve. And, of course, Steve... Is doing exactly what uh, Hostetler and uh, General are afraid of. Yeah. Question is, how much traction is he going to be able to get? Yeah. I was really afraid for Hostetler and the General when they stopped for the night. Like, I know they have to stop, but I was like, you guys, you're going to get killed. Like, mm-hmm. like just I'm from the way Steve I'm afraid for them with the plan that they've got. Yeah. I mean, because they were talking about going back. With the horse, and 
making everything okay, and then leaving again. I was like, yes, why, why are you thinking of doing that? Why don't you just go and pack all your stuff and get the hell out? Maybe it's like, uh, it's probably guilt. They're probably feeling guilty. Hosteller's got this pride that it's really s- strong pride. I think he just felt like he needed to do the right thing. Mm. Yeah, his pride is like, is to the point of making no sense. Right. A lot of times, yeah. He gets unreasonable with it. Right. Yeah. Which the general kind of pointed out. Um, how did he put it? Something about... The quote is, They ain't hung you yet, Hostetler, and maybe they won't even get the chance, but they sure have made you crazy with pride. There mm-hmm. it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is a great line. It really is. When he said that, I was like, yeah, this is this is such a symptom of, of what this guy has gone through in his life and... and uh, you know, these things come out in all different ways for different people, and it's uh, really interesting what they've done with Hostetler. Mm. Saul chafes at Al's anti-Semitic remarks regarding his people's pension for money-getting, but <laughs> Saul consents to school Silas on Montana politics. Later on, we'll get some information on Butte and Helena and two rich guys named Clark and Daly, but uh, it's all irrelevant and uninteresting, so... <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> We'll just skip that. We'll just skip the details of that conversation. Yay! Oh, yay! <laughs> also, I find it odd that Al's all like, oh, your people are all about money when that's literally all Al ever talks about. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. It's, yeah. Good. it's a good point. <laughs> I, I was really glad to see Saul stand up and, you know, hit back on that and not let it go. Just basically say, stop insulting me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Yep. And just like um, any racist or anti-Semite, Al's like, "Oh, geez, sorry, I offended you." Uh, right. <laughs> what do I have to? What do I have to do to show that I'm sorry? It's just a joke. God, you're I'm, so sensitive. I'm, you're so you're so sensitive, and I'm such a victim. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you so sensitive when I'm attacking you? Why are you hitting yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, if people wouldn't be so sensitive. I'd be able to say anything I wanted, and life would be so much better. But don't you dare say anything about me. (laughs) John Hawks says on the commentary that he was at the window, looking out the window, because he wanted to pretend he was elsewhere in June. (laughs) That's cute. That is pretty great. That actually kind of came across, not specifically elsewhere in June, but, you know, when he was doing that whole thing, I was like, my goodness, isn't he full of himself? You know, he's enjoying this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because he was swaggering around there and everything. Well, they wouldn't have called him if Seth had been available. Yeah. But would Seth have, but would Seth have known all that information they needed? Probably. Maybe, maybe not. Probably the two of them together would have been, you know, more than twice as much information because they probably would have, um, you know, each reminded the other of stuff. This was a really big episode for Saul, now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. He's struggling for power with Trixie, and he's feeling his power with Al. Mm-hmm. It feels like there's a lot of Saul this time. Yeah, that's a very good point. And there's a moment when Saul kind of, like, stands up straight and puts his hands, like, in like on his pockets, like, on his sides. And, and yeah. he's like, yeah, I'll school him. <laughs> yeah. It's very, it's very, like, yeah, it's very proud. Like, he looks uh-huh. like a peacock there. <laughs> yeah, it... It is like he made a decision to uh, to take a different role because he's been very passive for a long time. Right, right. Now he's a badass peacock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Watch out! I'll peck you. 
<laughs> from turtle to peacock this all star story <laughs> i wish i had predicted that <laughs> in alma's hotel room trixie demands to know how the lady inclines on the matter of ellsworth's proposal alma admits the prospect of ellsworth as a father delights her but marriage without love gives her pause it's understandable yeah says it seeing as she's had it before yeah and trixie you know of course, just, ah, eh, you did it once before, what's the big deal? <laughs> Trixie doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Trixie, I get the feeling that Trixie, when Trixie is upset about stuff, she just goes through everything that's bothering her and just, you know, starts ripping into everything to get something solved. Mm -hmm. But Trixie is also probably more practical, maybe, than Alma is in her emotions, I'm guessing. Oh. Uh. Uh, I don't know, I guess it depends on what you consider practical, because... I don't know, like, some people, maybe she doesn't really care about love, you know, like Alma does, but, like, Trixie's like, you know, you get married for practical reasons, you don't get married for love. Maybe that's well, what I Well, I think Trixie's also just totally cut off from mm -hmm. her emotions, or she tries to be, anyway. Yeah. I don't think, and I think Alma got a taste of of a real connection with somebody. And that's, that's hard to give up. Are we still talking about this scene with Alma and Trixie? I had a question for you guys. Go ahead. So there was a quote, and I can't find it now, but Trixie says something to Alma about, well, that didn't stop you from right. taking your cases or something. I thought that's what I heard her say, and I was just wondering if cases was slang in this time period for something. I wish I could find the quote. She says, yeah, but when it came to cases, you took that fucking leap. Ellsworth right. waits on your answer, whatever you await before giving it. So is it just like she, he's, ref or she's referring to Seth as a case, I guess. No, I, I assume her talking about her first, her first husband. husband. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, I kind of got the feeling like it was being used, like in case you need to do this. That kind of, kind of a torture. If you change the cases to make it like past instances. And yeah. the sentence would read, when it came to past instances, you took that leap. It would, yeah, it's sort of like, well, you've done it before. Yeah. But she doesn't yeah. know that she was pretty much pressured into the marriage by her father. Yeah, yeah, that she was pretty much sold to the guy. Would you say that she was sold under sin? Oh! Oh, title of episode 12. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It is a very weird, weirdly phrased line yeah. that she yeah, has that Trixie has yeah. um, Paula says on the commentary she's often been asked why it's so important to Trixie that Alma wed Ellsworth two reasons one she knows that they'll be okay and Trixie wants people to taken care of and two it's something she can control yeah um, particularly on this day of days where things are just spiraling mm -hmm. it's like, well that's something I can do yeah yeah I'll put put my matchmaker talents to work mm -hmm. yeah I have to amend an earlier statement because I'm reading more about Bullet Bourbon. <laughs> According to Tom Bullet, who created the modern brand, the first batch of Bullet Bourbon was made around 1830 by Augustus Bullet, who continued to produce it during the 19th century, but its production was discontinued after his death in 1860. Mm. Okay, so this is 17 years later. Um, so he's got an old bottle. Could be an old bottle, but the bottle in the show looks pretty modern looking like a modern label mm. i will post the screen grab to the facebook group 
and you can you can decide if this is a anachronism or not. Jane has returned with three pitchforks. Her plan is to use them to lever Moe's vertical like and move him from the sled to the couch. Doc <laughs> says, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> they want to know if he's going to operate, but he says there's just too much fat on Moe's to find the bullet. It's probably close to his heart. The whole endeavor is pointless. And Khan is herniated, so look after him. <laughs> I love that the doctor's like, I don't care about these people. Like, who cares? Mm-hmm. Like, he's just too busy. <laughs> Well, there's only so much he can do back I then. know. Like, you get, you really feel his helplessness this episode. Yeah. 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 What do you think of Jane's plan with the pitchforks? Um, <laughs> it can't end well. No. no. But this is why she, this is why I like her so much because she comes up with these harebrained schemes. She's yeah. a cosplayer of this <laughs> series. <laughs> <laughs> I think Doc is right that. In the end, he would end up stabbed with the pitchforks and such. Mm. He'd be out of his misery. That's true. Just leaving him on the sled is probably a good idea. You know what? It's probably the best idea she's ever had. If he does get stabbed with those pitchforks. (laughs) You know? It's just taking care of two problems at once. How much do you think he weighs? Is this like a jelly bean in the jar kind of podcast? (laughs) I just think, like, how much... You have four people, five people. The doc is kind of frail. Khan is herniated. Leon is frail. He's the strongest person is probably Jane and Joni. So the five of them are going to lift him up with pitchforks. Like He's got to weigh at least 500 pounds. But she was talking about using them as levers. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> it's trying to picture it and it just doesn't seem to work. Yeah, none of it seems no. I'm oh. I'm just picturing like an intricate like lever and pulley system <laughs> to try to lift him. Well, oh. If they'd taken him to a barn, there'd be a lever and pulley system, so they could have. Ah, been. yeah, that's true. But they took him to a house of ill repute instead. Mm-hmm. I guess they could have taken him to the livery and just broken in there if they were oh. desperate. But I don't think Sai really expects this guy to live. He just wanted someplace out of sight for him to die. Yeah. All right. And what better place than the Chesamese cupcakes? Yeah. Which you know what I... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, which just makes me think, you know, that he's going to live. I don't understand. Thai's problem with trying to get people who are going to die out of sight to die, and then they, you know, then he comes back. That's what happened with the guy who showed up at the end. Yeah. He's a minister now. But Sai had him dumped in the bracing air, and that's what made him better. <laughs> um, I don't understand why they didn't just finish him off. Because that would have been murder. Yeah, it's got- still murder if he dies. No, they got no. They- he he drew on them. He was okay. Yeah, so he was threatening them. Well, once yeah. he had six bullets in him, he wasn't threatening them anymore. Mm, that's true. Yeah, that's true. They never really cared if they murdered anyone before. Yeah, like, <laughs> they should just go for it and just end him. I mean, those pigs get a lot of work, so... This is true, but usually there aren't... How many people were in the thing when he did that? Those pigs would have had a Thanksgiving feast, guys. <laughs> uh, were a lot, weren't there a lot of people, though, at the uh, Bella Union or whatever the name of it is? <laughs> yeah, there were. It's... Yeah. So too many witnesses? Yeah. I mean, if he just dies, which they expect him to, then problem solved. 
Oh, they should have dumped Moe's into the pig pen, and then the one pig could say to the other pig, you know, I never thought I'd say this, but I can't eat another bite. Ha ha. Hun and Sigling, like, can't eat any Moe's. <laughs> I can't eat any Moe's. Oh, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and inside the doc's cabin, William coughs. Martha starts to blame herself. If I had kept him in Michigan, Seth encourages, encourages her to speak to William, but what should she say? You know, a kid can get trampled anywhere in the country. Sorry, but horses were, you know, everywhere. Yeah, you can't you can't start saying if I didn't do this, then this wouldn't happen. But you, that's what happens because you can go back as far as you want. <laughs> you can say that as much as you want, but as a parent, you're still going to feel guilty that you weren't there to protect your child, right? Yeah, yeah. Of course, you're going you're going to feel horrible no matter what. You're going to take it on yourself. I just thought that that for him to say yes, I was like, what, really? Because he would be safe from a, a trampling horse in Michigan? Because they don't have trampling horses in Michigan? When you think about it, though, like, Deadwood is really no place for a kid. This is true. Yeah. This is very true. Yeah. Seemed like he was trying to humor her, too, by just saying yes. It just made it maybe trying to diffuse the situation that, yes, you're not to blame, Martha. If we just left you in Michigan, you'd be okay. Yeah. I, I think... He didn't seem like he was really thinking much about what she was saying. He was true. Kind of, true. Like, you know, he looked like he was really shocked. Shell shocked. Shocked. Yeah. Yeah, he was definitely I agree. There's a chilling moment where he coughs and Martha flinches. I know. Oh yeah. How awful it must feel for her. Yeah. It was kind of a good thing that it wasn't worse. Like he wasn't worse looking. You know, like he could have been gasping for air the whole time or. You know, like, it could have been way worse. They could have portrayed it, like, really awfully. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You mean they could have had, like, half of his skull caved in? Yeah, like, they could have... That would Mas- have been really awful, obviously, but I mean, like... Massive head wound Harry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think in, in a weird way, though, it's almost more powerful that the kid looked basically okay. Yeah, yeah. And here... There's nothing they can do. He's just mm. dying, but he looks like he should be able to wake up any minute. I know. I know. I don't want to take too much trivia from the HitFix review because Ina does such a good job taking those comments and putting them on our Facebook group. But there, there was some stuff in the comments from Jim Beaver and Kian Young. They were kind of debating about why they were killing William off. Mm. And... One story is that the boy's uh, parents thought that he shouldn't be around such coarse language on the set. Oh, really? Wow. Which, um, I'll just quote this. During the time that we filmed The Death of William, I had lunch with Josh Erickson's real-life mother. I asked her about her feelings about Josh's departure. She told me she requested it. She felt Josh was too young to be in the Deadwood environment. She was appreciative of the opportunity, but felt her son was a bit too young mm. to be around such coarse language. Interesting. Uh, but come on, you know what the show was before you let your kid be on the show. Yeah, maybe she didn't. <laughs> That's a pretty bad admission, then. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of times the uh, when there are kids involved, they they make a pretty strong effort to keep the kids away from... You know, the, the more adult themes and, and language and all of that that's going on in the show and kind of protect them a little bit and let them be kids. But 
others don't. So Deadwood just might have been one of those environments where they weren't really, or she didn't feel like they were really protecting him as a maybe. kid. I, maybe I guess, maybe, yeah. Um, if you listen to the Back to Frank Black podcast, you'll hear Brittany Tip Lady say that when she was on Millennium as a child, they really did a great job keeping her from all the violence and scariness. Mm. Like she had no idea like what the show was. She just did her scenes, and they were very protective of her on that set. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, in most cases, that they were they probably were good on the set of Deadwood. You know what probably happened though is that uh, little William, whatever, little Josh, sorry, was home someday, and then he dropped something, and he was like, "Motherfucking cocksucker!" And then his mother was like. <gasps> <laughs> And then she's like, you're never working there again. <laughs> but that's Maybe. what happened. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Jim Beaver, his his theory was that, according to what, what he had heard, was that it was something more akin to that of Kristen Bell in season one, that someone on his support team had unpleasant dealings with the production. And oh. when, when you are an irritant to the production, they find ways to get rid of you. Wow. Well, it's easy enough to get rid of an actor there's no two ways about that i i guess but i feel like you know you're a storyteller you want the story to play out the way that you want it to and you don't allow it to get affected by things like drama someone's someone's manager being a pain in your ass i guess it depends on how big a pain in the ass yeah i guess petty but i guess there's drama everywhere well you know it's it's really tough to make these things so if people are consistently putting obstacles in your way. I could see someone just saying, enough, I don't need this nonsense. Mm. Also, it usually is difficult to deal with kids on set just as far as the restrictions and stuff. They have to be in school a certain amount of the day. They can only work a certain amount of time and so forth. So that's why you see a lot of kids that are supposed to be 15 years old being played by 19-year-olds or 20-year-olds or whatever. Yeah, right. And also why you you have, like, kids... Where are those kids? <laughs> I thought these characters had children. We never see them. Well, that's why. Right. They don't want the kids on the set. They're paying pain in the ass. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just... There's a lot of the restrictions and stuff that go with it, and these shows are already trying to get done in a, in a very limited amount of time. So if it's... Especially if it's an ambitious show like this one is, um, you know, any kind of impediment can... And make them say, you know, we just don't have time or money for this. At any rate, Jim Beaver says, certainly Josh himself was a delight, a sweet boy that we all hated to see leave us. Aww. Jim Beaver's so nice. At least they didn't shoot him in the face like Veronica Mars or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Merrick closes his blinds. He doesn't want to speak to the commissioner. (laughs) Hugo goes to Al's office. There, Silas is instructed by Al to say what Bullock had him doing in Montana. And all of this is a lie, hopefully constructed by Saul. Okay, so we're going to get into it. Bear with me. Okay. Silas's story is that he went to a restaurant in Montana called The Stone House, where a man with a bag over his head offered $50,000 to bribe camp officials into letting Montana annex the camp. I think. When Hugo leaves, Al tells Silas that Yankton will be convinced of Montana's offer and that there will be elections. I think. <laughs> Sounds about right. 
Yeah. Um, the point of the scene seems to be that in order to convince the commissioner that this Montana thing is real is that they want the commissioner to dwell on this detail of, uh, of a man with a bag over his head. Like who's, who, what's the identity of the man with a bag over his head? A detail that's just so weird that it's gotta be a true story. So they get him thinking about the guy with a bag over his head and nothing else. And then they let the commissioner convince himself that the story's true. Mm. I think yeah. it's the point of how it's constructed. Okay. I think the other point to that is that because there's a bag over his head, they can't say, they can't give him an answer of who is actually making the offer because they don't know. So Therefore. Deniability? Exactly. And if, if they, if they find out, you know, if they talk to the people in Montana and everybody in Montana seems to have no idea what they're talking about or claim to have no idea, well, you know, it's because there's somebody who's doing this very secretly. Obviously, that's why he had a bag over his head. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Could be Clark. Could be Davis. Could be somebody else. You know, could be any of these people. We just don't know. So that's well, that, sounds yeah. Sounds true to me. <laughs> um, the construction of the scene is weird because instead of having Silas tell Al and Hugo, we have Hugo repeating back the story of what we must of the scene that we didn't see, mm-hmm. and he's repeating it back to a to them what the story was. So it's like, there's another layer of weirdness onto this. Mm-hmm. Besides the fact that it's kind of confusing and yeah. in the, the story's a lie, so that right. makes it difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. And it's not real. You got Silas pretending to be angry when he's not. Mm-hmm. So he's pretend he's playing a part that's like a con, so it's it's all pretty confusing. <sighs> Yeah, it's kind of con us as well. <laughs> I feel con. Yeah, I do. Yeah, but it is great how Silas and Al play off of each other and oh, yeah, all planned out. That part of the scene makes it entertaining to watch. Yeah, I like that too. I thought they, I thought they made a real good team. Yes, and it was a real good illustration of why um, Al has wanted Silas around. Because mm-hmm. can you imagine him trying to do that with uh, Dan or or Johnny or somebody. Right. But Al, you told me before that I was supposed to say it this way. <laughs> right. Silas picks up the ball and runs with it. And... Yeah. Well, back in season one, Al tried to do that with E.B. and E.B. just flubbed it up yeah. when they were conning Brom. Yeah. So Silas can be trusted to carry his own weight with that kind of thing, but much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because E.B., E.B. decided to take, if I remember correctly, uh, to expand on it so that he could grab a bigger portion of the pie. Yeah, he got greedy. Yeah, instead of following Al's instructions. Big surprise. I also like when the scene ends and Hugo leaves, Silas just says to Al, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. We all feel that way. Right. Yeah, I I thought, aha, the voice of the audience. Yes. (laughs) I will go on record and say this is probably my least favorite my least favorite scene of the entire series because I... it is long, it is confusing, it is boring, and I don't want to spend time with these characters when I could be with William, Martha, Seth, mm-hmm. people that I really like. Yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind I didn't mind this scene because of the play between Al and uh whatever his name is, Silas. All the different Psy characters, always, you know, it's like we've got Psy and Silas and Saul and Seth. And, mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I didn't mind that. The The scene where Saul was explaining everything, I, I'm glad we kind of skipped over that one because 
although I enjoyed Saul's peacock-like thing, you're right, the actual information that we have to have in order to make these things work is, like, not information I really want. Right, and it's hard to recap and then explain it and make it interesting. And I, yeah. and the thing is, I don't think it's really that relevant. Like, I'm not sure that these details of, of who the people in Montana are, like, it, I don't mm-hmm. think it matters. Like, all you need to know is that yeah. they're convincing the commissioner from Yankton that that this like Montana is a, is a contender when they're not, and that what they've done is they've made the convic- commissioner convince himself, right, with a because of a weird fixation on a guy with a bag over his head. But <laughs> yeah, um, after Doc watches Martha and Seth through the window of his cabin, he tells Jewel to fetch him if the situation changes. He's decided to operate on a whale. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I I love the fact that he you know. He doesn't want to be bothered with with these guys at the uh, at Joni's place, but no, he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to deal with William even more, so he's going back. Yeah. Well, he he's he's useless. What can he do? Yeah. Just he, be... Yeah. No, he can't do anything. Right. That's, that's the sad thing about medicine in that era. And even when he could do things, he was like, well. There's not much of a chance that this will work, so uh-huh. <laughs> don't get your hopes up. At least if he fails at reviving Moe's, there's no one disappointed that he didn't save him. Yeah, or true. He, and he'll probably learn a little bit of something from it, too. Yeah. Yeah. It is night, and we are some distance from the camp. Fields is urinating right next to the campfire, and Hostiler asks, do you have to do that right here? Oh, yeah. Fields says, yes, because it's scary in the woods, and I can't <laughs> piss when I'm scared. <laughs> you get they, shy. Yeah. <laughs> they hear a horse neighing somewhere in the wilderness, and, and Hostetler decides, you know what, I'm going to get that horse, and I'm going to bring it back to Deadwood. I'll pay my respects for the pain that I can't fix, and then maybe, if they forgive him... I can leave with this loudmouth apprentice of mine and head to Oregon where I can open a livery. So they're going to get that horse and they're going to bring it back. Yeah, yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. I don't yeah. get it. I mean, it's like... Just leave. Yeah, go, go back in at night, quietly, load up all your stuff and get the hell out. Or write a... Just write a nice letter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry that your son died. Yeah. Please understand, I would tell you this in person... But I'm afraid that I will be killed by Steve, who you and you know Steve. Even the mom. You know Steve. You, you, you know Steve. So, yeah. P.S. Oh. Here's a fruitcake. Aw, <laughs> they bake like a wilderness fruitcake. <laughs> and this is where we get that line where uh, Fields tells Hostetler that you are just crazy with pride. They made you crazy with pride. Mm hmm. Yeah. Huh. Hugo is pleased to be at the Bella Union, back amongst his friends. Silas has confirmed Sheriff Bullock has been Montana's go-between, making offers to annex the camp. Side doubts Bullock and Al would work together. Hugo doesn't know if the Montana offer is real or not, but presses Wilcott to have Hurst make an offer that might enlist Al to their cause. Then Wilcott inquires about William, which surprises Cy. Mm. And me, too. Yeah. That's... Yeah, he's got a somewhat of a conscience there. Maybe he likes kids. It's a scary thought. <laughs> yeah. That, that way. Liking anybody is a scary thought. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe he feels for, because, I don't know, maybe maybe all his problems stem from his childhood, so he sympathizes with children, maybe. 
On another could be. On another note, um, my note here that I have about that scene is that Al has made himself a player in this whole thing. You mean the annexation, yeah, Clinton nonsense? Because he was being kind of ignored. He had been sick and stuff, but he was really cut out of the. Nobody was really paying much attention to Al at all, and he has now made himself a player in this whole thing. I know, I have a note here. I can't remember where exactly it goes, but. There was a guy riding a horse, and he had peach-colored pants on. <laughs> yes! <laughs> oh, yeah? Yes, yeah, I was like, and it was delightful. I was like, those pants don't look like they're the right color for the times. They were like a dusty peach. Yeah. Yeah. It was. This, I think it was a scene where maybe Doc was standing outside a building, and there was a guy in the foreground with like these peach-colored pants. It almost looked like he was naked for a split sec. I'm watching it now, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I hate it when people wear peach-colored clothing, though, because from afar, it does look like they're naked. Like, if someone wears, like, a peach-colored bathing suit at a beach, you're like, oh my god! And you're like, oh, it's peach. They look more, it looks like more like a dusty rose. Yeah. Either way, like, don't wear a skin-colored bathing suit, guys. It's just wrong. Could they have been, like... I won't. <laughs> supposed to be buckskin or something? Mmm... I can't I tell. I don't no. remember at all. I did not notice. Uh, well, listeners, it happens right after uh, Doc looks in his cabin window and decides he's going to operate on Moe's. Uh, it's at the 28 minute, 20 second mark. You see, you don't even see the top half of this guy. You just see the horse's ass and the <laughs> pants. And his ass. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. huh. I didn't notice him. I was too busy looking at Doc's outfit thinking, has he always looked that velvet? His suit always looked that velvety. <laughs> velvety smooth guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's velvet. Is it? I mean, he's always had the same suit, but for some reason I just couldn't, I was so distracted by that. They call him the velvet fog. <laughs> and you know, it's weird because I did not notice clothes pretty much at all in this episode, except way at the beginning. EB had a huge bow tie, like a clown bow tie on. <laughs> you know that? <laughs> yeah, his uh, cravat is that what it's called? No, yeah, it's just but a it, big bow tie. But it was tied like a cravat. It was it was tied like a great big clown bow tie. <laughs> right, he's got the big clown bow tie on top of his frilly laced um, yeah. shirt. Then there's a vest, a brown vest, and on top of that is like a turquoise or sea foam jacket. Seafoam. There's like four layers of clothing on his. Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. That- that weird, that clown bow tie, just, uh, that one I noticed. It was like, whoa. I also <laughs> noticed a lot of red in this, this episode. Alma's wearing red. Mm-hmm. Joni's wearing red. Khan's wearing red. red. And there's the blood stains on various people. Just seemed very, I, I noticed color a lot more in this episode, I guess. Yeah, I did, I did notice Alma's red dress. And, uh. Red was- draperies. Well, that's the same dress as last episode, because it's yeah, just... Uh, that's yeah. true. It's just basically a couple minutes later after that one ends. Yeah, Alma wears a lot of red anyways, I find. Red and green. Oh, she's a fox. <laughs> I don't know, I just noticed a lot more color this time, all around. Now, this is my favorite scene of the episode. We get Seth and Martha talking to William. Seth is proud of William's duck calls, his garden, how he takes care of his mother when he's away. And I think he's... In this scene, he's speaking as though he's William's real father, Seth's brother Robert, is how I'm interpreting this. What mm. do you guys think? You could be right, because 
I was wondering about the de- the duck calls because he he didn't. It was his brother that taught him the duck calls, right? And and William was just going to show Seth what he could do. Right. He hasn't heard the duck calls, so when he's saying, "I'm proud of the calls you've made, and I've enjoyed showing you how to make them, and now you make them better than I do," thank you for caring for your mother. I think he's in this moment. He's um, acting as though he's. William's real father, and he's going to see him soon, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. I hadn't quite put that together, but that that makes a lot of sense. Any other thoughts on this? Just that it's super sad? It, it's super sad, and it it is very... It, it's. I don't know whether it's going to end up a bonding moment for the two of them or not. I mean, a few minutes before, Martha was saying that she wanted to take uh, William home, Michigan, I assume Michigan. Oh, I thought that just meant their family home. Oh, I just thought... being in the, just being in the docks cabin. Oh, home to Michigan to bury, you mean? I, you know, I thought she meant, like, I just want to take him home, like, to Michigan. That was my thought, but it could have been just, I want to take him home to our house. Um, and, uh, you know, he can't be moved, or he shouldn't be moved, or whatever. I, it, I don't know, it's just so... I'm not sure what she was meaning, actually. But when she said home, my first thought was Michigan. Yeah, I thought that oh, too. I, I think because she had just said, um, that's right, it, because she had just talked about how she shouldn't have brought him out there. You know, going back to look at that scene, I'm looking at the transcript right now, and she says, if I had kept him in Michigan, Seth says yes. And she says, I want to take him home. Doc says better, he's not moved. Maybe he's... Maybe Seth is hearing her say home as in their family home, which is why he's saying better not moved, but she, she means Michigan. And when he said yes before, it all goes to he's not really listening to what she's saying because he's in his own headspace right now. Or he's just feeling guilty, you know, that, yeah, them coming out was just a huge mistake. But I got the feeling that she, she was talking about going back to Michigan and, he, you know, I I don't know whether this is going to end up bonding for them or whether she's just ready to pack up and go or, you know, what their situation is. It does leave a great big question mark. I'll read this quote from Milch. He says, Bullock, in his flight from anything spontaneous, which he equates with violence, does what the Bible tells him to do. It is a means of self-control. He resents and hates Martha Bullock as the symbol and cause of his repression, Gradually, through accumulating acts of kindness, the little accidents of human feeling that can't help but filter through their marriage changes, he discovers that he can be kind to the boy who is not his son and kind to the woman who is not his wife. Not his wife, like, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Richardson is praying to the god of antlers and hooves. He's oh, asking uh... it to bless William's journey. Evie says, whatever, moron, just don't freak out the guests. You know, those guests that we never see. Don't freak them out. <laughs> This, by far, was my favorite scene of the entire episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was bizarre. Oh, I loved it. I like, it looks like he was trying to transfer power from the one pair of antlers to another. Yeah, I could literally hear the sound in my head, like, wow, wow, wow. Or I want somebody to, like, I want somebody to go in there and uh, put special effects of, like, crackling lightning going from one. (laughs) 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 Wow, (laughs) wow, (laughs) wow. Oh, <laughs> uh, the best! I just love him. I love him mm-hmm. every time I see him. I just like oh, too much. Yeah. 
In his commentary, John Hawks compares Richardson to the character Boo Radley of To Kill a Mockingbird, a simpleton who appears very kind, but for some reason you still don't trust him around your kids because you're afraid of some unexpected burst of violence. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, she trusts him around her kid. Well, she said, sort don't of. go in. Yeah. Well, it's because he looks scary. <laughs> well, he's kind of creepy. I don't expect violence from him, but he's, you know, he's... It can be creepy. I, I honestly don't get a creepy vibe from him. I just get, I don't know, I just... Yeah, helpless he's, simpleton. He's yeah. so subservient, you know? He's, yeah. E.B. tells him, you know, you should be uh, ashamed of, you know, don't don't let the guests see you. You're too weird. When Alma shows up, he doesn't let her see the antlers. He, like, backs away. Yeah. The antlers behind him. Like, whatever E.B. says, like, he just follows it to the letter. Well, also, there's another reason to not let her see the antlers. I mean, they're still the same ones that he has been worshipped that she had in her hand. Yeah, but I don't get that that he that he thinks like that. Like, oh, I better not let her see these antlers. Yeah, it's I don't... more like, oh, E.B. says, don't let anyone see the antlers. Okay. Right. He's I not smart enough it. for that, yeah. Right. So I don't, yeah, I don't get any kind of creepiness from him either, because he seems like... Such that, a simpleton. That one thing about like you're pretty, yeah, you know, it's just, it just, <laughs> yeah, yeah but it was said so. I felt like it wasn't said in the kind of like a gross it, sexual undertone. He just childlike innocence. Yeah, yeah. I thought he thought she was really pretty, and he was like, oh my, like he had stars in his eyes for her. It was not lewd at all. I didn't. It wasn't like I want, I want your skin. Yeah, to make, <laughs> to make clothing, <laughs> to make pants. <laughs> <laughs> to, to make flesh-colored pants, I want your flesh. No, he was, he's just... It was like little baby Anakin Skywalker when he first saw Padme. Are you an angel? <laughs> it is exactly like that. Except it's an old man, and that's probably why Carol thinks it's creepy. <laughs> Are you an angel? <laughs> Saul is waiting in Merrick's office as Ellsworth manages the hardware store. I like this. Ellsworth is just a stand-up friend. He's just like, you know what? You got you be with your people, and uh, I'll I'll take care of the hardware store. Don't worry about that. I got your back. Oh, Ellsworth, you're the best. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Good guy. Yeah, stand-up guy. And then Merrick brings them tea. I loved that scene when he brings them the tea, and they're just they're not saying anything, but they're bonding together over this. And then Saul's like, I'm out of here. Yeah. I've been fortified. Time to go and... <laughs> Well, to go back to the commentary, John Hawks says that in this moment, Saul is torn between going to the hardware store and doing something useful, but feeling callous, and going to the doc's cabin where he would be useless and in the way. So he's stuck in the middle with Merrick and Blazinoff, just accepting their kindness. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, John Hawks says in Stories of the Black Hills, Star and Bullock were an interesting combination of civil servants, businessmen, and true pioneers. Star sticks with Bullock not because he feels weak, but out of loyalty. There's a genuine caring and affection and love for a brother. Al tells Trixie the day saw advances. None miraculous. Ding! Episode title. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of hit everybody over the head. Yeah. Gives me a good idea for uh, our miscellaneous prediction for the next one. Al encourages Trixie to go stand with Jewel outside of Cochran's cabin. Outside of Cochran's, Wu brings tea to Jewel. And I know that it's tea because of uh, Kian Young's comments in the HitFix site. He says it's traditional Chinese tea. I thought it was opium. I thought he was offering her like a little jar of opium. 
Does he have a crush on her? A crush on Jewel? Yeah. Why do you her? Why do you only offer it to her? Well, she's been standing at the door all day. Mm, I guess, but yeah. Yeah. It's sad that she has to tell him she can't accept it because she can't hold it. Yeah, mm. gimp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was sad. Saul tips his hat at Woo and Woo scurries off. But Saul in Saul Star in real life was uh, quite a quite a community like Chinese. How do I phrase it? Um, John Hawk says that Saul Star was the bridge to the Asian community. Oh, really? He was invited where no one else was into their lodges and their ceremonies, weddings, funerals, things like that. When he owned the flour mill, it was said that no one ever went hungry. That's awesome. Yeah, and then I found it in the Real Deadwood uh, book that I have that uh, he was one of only two non-Chinese people allowed at ceremonies in the Masonic Lodge in Deadwood's Chinese community. He worked hard to smooth relations between the two communities, seeing in the Chinese the same strong work ethic that he admired in others. Nice. Huh. He's, a, he's a bridge builder. It's awesome. So there was a Masonic Lodge in the Chinese community? That's what it sounds like. That's weird. <laughs> mm, it does seem a little strange. I mean, it is in an awful lot of countries all over, but I didn't realize it was... Huh. Interesting. Well, maybe they built the Masonic Lodge there because they felt like then they can work on getting the Chinese out of the neighborhood. <laughs> uh, gentrify it. Huh. I don't know. I don't think that really is how it works, but... Well, Sai is, built, is buying up property in Chinatown. Wonder, maybe I misunderstood what you were saying. Mm. That's possible. No, I was just saying, speculating that maybe they built the Masonic Lodge in Chinatown because they were, the white people were trying to get a foothold in that territory. That's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. So they built it like for the white people, not building Right. Oh, right. Okay. see, that's what I... Uh, my brain just skipped a beat there for a minute. Okay. But then they said that they had ceremonies in the lodge, but maybe, again, the people who built it, uh, maybe they just acquiesced and said, all right, you can use you can well, use the lodge. You're paying us, th- all right. One of the things I know that happened with the black community was that because a lot of white Masonic orders would not accept African-American members, they started creating their own masonic lodges and and also maybe the same thing happened with the chinese could be maybe the chinese wanted to westernize themselves a little more so they were a little more accepted we're masons too <laughs> sure you are that's adorable <laughs> um okay freemasonry in asia of course because the the british were in were in china <laughs> so I'm seeing something here about Freemasonry first saw light in China in the province of Guangzhou in the late 1700s. So, yes, the Freemasons were in China. Inside the doc's cabin, William whimpers, then he exhales, and then he breathes no more. Okay, yeah. That's what I was wondering. I was like, is he... Because I couldn't tell. It was barely, barely noticeable, I guess. It sounded like a death exhale, but... It, it's a death rattle. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's... The doc says if God wasn't so myopic, he'd have made the horse kill William outright instead of having him suffer and his parents watch him suffer. Mm. Just an, an inch to the right or something, he says. And then he would just would have been dead and it would have been simple and... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then, assisted by Jane, he begins to cut into Moe's. In the background, Khan winces. Gross. 
I winced too. <laughs> what do you do for a hernia back then, I wonder? I think, I'm guessing you push it back in and... That's what you did. That's put like a put like a belt around you or something or try and do something to hold it there till it can heal. Mm. Uh, that's a guess on my part. Andy Kramed has returned. If you've forgotten who he is, he helpfully reminds us, and E.B. He came last year to hustle dice, but fell sick from plague. Sai had him dumped into the bracing air, and later he was discovered by Jane, saying, I apologize. <laughs> now he is a minister in lead, come to Deadwood to be on call to the family of the injured boy. How? I'm glad to see him back, but how did he know? I mean, lead isn't that far away, I guess. Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. It was like... Did you just happen to be coming around and found out about it, or did you hear? I mean, Leeds pretty far away, as I recall. Um, driving distance four miles, seven kilometers. That's only four know. miles away. Yeah, but I don't huh? know how long that would take on horseback. But there's the telegraph now. True. Maybe the telegraph is so new that people just send messages to each other, like. Oh, hey, we got to try this. What could we say? What could we say? Uh, you know, Jim just got the telegraph. Um, a kid just got hit by a horse. Well, it still does cost <laughs> That's fine. Let's, stuff, let's do that. Yeah, but they're just doing it for fun. Funsies. <laughs> for <Maybe>. fun. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe, know. maybe it has to do with, um, since it's in the newspaper office, maybe they're passing news stories back and forth between different, you know, papers, local papers. Okay. Uh, maybe Merrick or somebody, Saul, just sent the telegram to lead. Like, hey, we don't have a minister here, but we heard you have one. Send them, just in case. When you go back in time to the 1880s or whatever, uh, make sure that the first telegram ever sent is, listen to Hooplecast. <laughs> I will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, lead is really close. That's Alma exits her room. She asks Richardson to stand outside her door in case Sophia calls out outside the door, not not inside, where you might terrify her. <laughs> You're scary motherfucker, Richardson. <laughs> um, and then he, he backs up because he doesn't want her to see the antlers. Uh, I wonder if anyone can give Richardson orders because he hasn't. Because he seems to take orders from whoever will give them to him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he's adorable. I agree. <laughs> He's very sweet. Ellsworth joins Alma outside the doc's cabin. Inside, Martha strokes William's head. There is no revelry in the gem tonight. As soon as Seth leaves the cabin with tears in his eyes, Saul knows that William has died. He turns and walks away. Everyone who has been waiting for news of William takes one look at Saul. They know that the tragic and unthinkable has happened. Al watches Saul from his balcony. He goes back inside. This is not his department. Yeah. Yeah, and I still didn't know whether William had Me actually either. died or not yeah. until you just explained it. So if we hadn't done this podcast, it would have been basically a cliffhanger, and I would have <laughs> basically found out next episode, oh, he's dead. Yeah. But they always do that in this show. They always kind of leave it sort of ambiguous so that you don't really find out till the next episode. Mm. Did like you guys notice the music that, that started to play right around this time in the background was so haunting but really beautiful? Hmm. I did not notice the music this time. Me neither. Yeah, I thought it was nice and somber, and I, don't know, I, f I feel like just with uh, everything we knew about William's condition, that if he wasn't dead at the end of this episode, it was just a matter of time. So yeah. 
he was either dead right then or he, or he was barely hanging on and he wouldn't last the night. So, although these things, I mean, people could just hang on for days back then because it was just things that now we would cure. You know, it just took them a while to to die from them. Yeah. But yeah, I'm glad they didn't make it last over lots of episodes or something. Yeah. Why do you think Saul turns and walks away? Wants to let them be alone, I guess. Well, he's talking to a minister. Hmm. I mean, minister, go in. Yeah, he did go in. Or, well, I got the feeling he was going in. Uh, Seth seemed to step to one side or talk to him seriously, so I would assume that he'd go in. So, did you want us to like think that maybe uh, Saul would give Seth a hug or something? I'm just wondering like, why, like. Trixie and Jewel are still waiting. Um, maybe he was just going to go give the news to Ellsworth and Alma or talk to them or yeah. maybe he just, maybe he's really upset. He has to grieve privately. Maybe he wants to give Seth more privacy. Uh, I don't know. He could have stuck, he could have stuck around instead. He walks and walks away and leaves. What do you do? Like when you're like in that day and age where you don't really talk about your feelings that much, you know? Yeah. What do you do? There's not, it's hard, like, you know. It is kind of weird for him, actually, for them to concentrate so much on Saul at that last moment, because he doesn't, I mean, he, he cares about the boy and everything, but no more than a whole lot of other, he hasn't had any more dealings with him than a whole lot of other people. Yeah, and Jewel and Trixie look at him like, wh- where are you going? Or <laughs> Like, that's your girlfriend, dude. Like, she's upset. Like, maybe stay with her or take her hand and say, let's go over here and get a cup of coffee because I let these people have their private moment or something. Instead, he just walks away by himself, so I'm just wondering why he did that. At first, I thought he was walking up to um, Alma and Ellsworth. Mm -hmm. I thought that's where he was headed at first because they they were cutting to Alma and Ellsworth as he walked away, but then he seemed to walk right by them or or whatever. I don't don't know. It kind of got lost in there. I wasn't quite sure. I watched it a couple times, actually, because it it wasn't as clear as I would have liked. Well, for your predictions, Carol predicted that William is dead, but people start moving on with their lives. No, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, you you guessed correctly that William would die. Yeah. Whereas uh, Matt predicted that William would be alive but have a life-altering injury, and Mel predicted that he would be simultaneously both dead and alive. Uh, because he's dead, because he's dead inside, because the horse trampled his soul. Uh, so, in this respect, Carol, you are closer. Oh, he did trample his soul. Uh, Mel also predicted that Tom will attach a cart to his bone shaker and cart William to the doctors, and the bone shaker will save the day. Oh, no! Tom said, "Get rid of that bone shaker. I don't want to see it." Yeah. Ew. That's sad. That's a sad prediction. That's probably the saddest prediction I've ever done. Because mm. the bone shaker's no more. Mm. And, also predicted, so and so is William. He <laughs> also predicted that the doc would lose both his patients and hate himself. Well, lost one patient. The other one, we're not sure. And we don't really know Doc's state of mind right now, except that he feels kind of helpless. We don't know if he hates himself. He almost seems like he doesn't give a shit this episode. <laughs> doesn't give a shit about anything, actually, so... <laughs> I think that Doc is in a constant state of hating himself. Yeah. Um, Matt predicted that William would be grafted onto the bone shaker, and it's not miraculous, it's science. 
That <laughs> or an alien army advances on the town. What? Uh, <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> you're, you're wrong on both counts, my friend. Damn it. <laughs> then for your miscellaneous prediction, I wanted you to predict how many minutes before we see the doctor. Mel said 25 seconds. Matt said two minutes. Carol said four minutes. Uh, we did not see the doctor until 11 minutes and 35 yep. seconds. Wow. So you were all really far off, but the closest was Carol. So I'm going to have to give it to Carol. Yay, I have one point for the season. Yep. No, you have two points. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) You correctly guessed the number of fucks in episode three. Okay. (laughs) All right, let's do feedback. Let's have uh, our guest read some. Are you up for that, Laurel? Sure. So our first bit of feedback is from Harold. Hey, Harold. This is such a sad episode, watching characters who don't normally express their feelings, trying to maintain their stoicism in the face of tragedy. The episode has some of my most memorable moments in the series. Richardson holding up his antler in prayer for William, Nuttle banishing the bone shaker from number 10, Con Stapleton's comic hernia from trying to pull Moe's manual and Seth, and Martha's scenes with William. Elsewhere, the Yankton, Montana gameship, gamemanship did not really hold my attention this episode, although I can say once again that Stephen Tobolowski was perfectly fine. <laughs> Am I the only one who finds it odd that several episodes after having killed at least three women, Walcott remains in town, is not treated as a pariah, and even gets to make a joke that is at, that at least he isn't as bad as a politician? Even assuming that he is going to get a pass on the murders due to a lack of evidence and disinterest in prosecuting him, you would think that after he got beat up by Charlie Utter that he would move on to another mining town. If I was Hot Stetler, I would keep on going forward and not look back. Nine out of ten raised antlers. You know, um, Hot Stetler does make a comment about how everybody is killing each other in this and still walking around and still having friends and that kind of stuff. And, of course, Wolcott definitely comes to mind immediately. Mm. Yeah, if you're white, you can give it the hell you want. If you're white and you've got someone rich behind you, especially. Yeah. yeah. Which is why he wouldn't have moved on, because he's still working for a guy who wants him there. Mm. He's got a job to do. Okay, our next feedback is from Nutty. Hey, Nutty. Mel, I'd like you to read this one. Sure. This was a pretty good reaction episode. I'm happy to see how everyone in the camp is affected by this. Makes you realize they aren't all callous. Has Richardson been carrying those antlers around ever since Alma gave them to him on their walk? And that's it. You're just... (laughs) (laughs) Very short. (laughs) And I wrote back and I said, I will answer your question. Yes, Richardson has an antler fetish. And Nutty went on to say, I noticed it in one of the other episodes too during the bike race. Well, it wasn't a race, but... And then this episode, he hides it behind his back when Alma talks to him, so it gets me thinking he kept it because she gave it to him, and she's so pretty. He's creepy, but oddly in a sweet way. That's pretty much it, yeah. (laughs) Aw, I don't think it's creepy at all. (laughs) And we have feedback from Barb. Matt, would you read this, please? All right. I loved it that Mr. Wu brought a cup of tea to her as she waited outside the docks and Jewel clearly didn't want it, but was so careful of his feelings. I don't know if she didn't want it. She just couldn't... Couldn't hold it. Take it. 
I think that it must have been quite a step for Alma to ask Richardson to watch Sophia, too. She still felt the need to micromanage, but that had to have been part, had to have been a tremendous affirmation of trust on her part, which they both understand. These small kindnesses undercut the sadness a bit as the good or at least redeemable denizens of Deadwood found themselves coming together in shared tragedy. It could have been modeling in some hands, but not here. Uh, is that it? That's it. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Thank We're getting you. lots of short feedback today. Mm. Thank you, Barbara. Everyone's just upset. Oh. Just sad, guys. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a very sad kind of slow-moving episode. Have you noticed this podcast today has been very sad and slow-moving as well? Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, kid died. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I, I really do think it's reflective of the of the episode. Yeah, that's not an action-packed <laughs> episode. No, it's not a barrel of laughs at all. No. Um, maybe Will will make us laugh, because I have got some audio feedback from Will. How are you going to co- compare a child's death to a sexual position, Will? <laughs> uh, Please tell me. <laughs> this is going to be terrifying. <laughs> Let's play it now. <laughs> Oh God, Hoopalcast, what was it about this episode that made me just not give a fuck? I don't know, maybe it's because it was a child dying, I just didn't really care. Oh. Uh, it was a little sad, I mean, Trixie's not a good looking crier, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I don't know, it was just the stuff with Miss Isringhausen, I think I kind of followed it. She gone for good. Hopefully, I'm kind of tired of her. Um, uh, what else happened? I don't even. The stuff with Jody, man. The doctor was good in the episode. I guess Al was great as always, but I don't know. I just didn't care. It was a little sad and depressing, and and I needed to lift me up right now. What's wrong with me? Aww. This episode is like when you just want to be celibate for a little while. You just kind of... I guess you're already recording by now. So sorry for being late. I don't expect forgiveness, but... See, I can't even remember the fucking line. See, I just... I'll, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Aww. <laughs> well, well, maybe Will will cheer us up. Nope. I want to give him a hug. That's so sad. Now I feel bad for Will. Will, you're up. Well, c- turns out he compared a child dying to celibacy. So. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. very appropriate. Thank you, that, Will. That works. So. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't go any other way. <laughs> <laughs> no reason to be concerned. <laughs> well, thank you for the feedback, uh, Harold, Nutty, Barb, and Will. Thank Appreciate you. It. Love it when you guys write thank in. Thank you. Or send in your audio feedback. The other guys are all dead. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's inappropriate. <laughs> We're all sad. soon. <laughs> Melanie. We're all sad child dying. <laughs> Alright, let's rate this. Laurel, as our guest, you may go first. What do you what's your rating? What do you think of this one? Huh. Um well all told it wasn't my favorite episode either, for obvious reasons, I guess. I guess I would give it mm, an 8.5 horses to piss on fucking special. Nice. <laughs> Carol? Um, yeah, I, 
this was such a conduit episode. I mean, I just felt like I get it. I get why. And I kind of respect their courage in doing an episode like this where it's just all about the atmosphere in town and, and how people are reacting to it and all. And, and on that level, it was interesting, but, um, not my favorite to say the least. I, I'll go with the seven out of ten. People waiting around to see what happens next. Okay, Matt? Uh, this was probably my least favorite episode of the series so far. Yeah. Um, I didn't, there's too much political stuff going on. Um, but I really did like the antlers stuff and, uh, anything we had with the bullocks, even though there wasn't much of it. I'm gonna give it five out of ten antler prayers, which I'm pretty sure is my lowest score. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> Mel? Um, I agree with what everybody said, I guess. It's kind of a downer of an episode. Although that doesn't usually bother me that much. I mean, you have to be sad sometimes, right? Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, the political stuff. <laughs> Snooze. Um, I'm gonna give it six out of ten bags over your head. Okay. Mm-hmm. Assuming that you'd be wearing six bags on top of each other. Maybe. <laughs> And the limit is ten? <laughs> I don't know. Alright. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um Yeah, this is probably my least favorite so far. Um Oh, there's worse to come, huh? No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry. And it's not because it's sad. Like it's fine that it's sad. In fact, I I feel like when we're with the sad stuff in the in, with Martha and Seth, and then toward the end when like everybody in the gem is very quiet and no one's drinking and no one's carrying on because this awful thing has happened to this family, like I feel like that's when this episode is the strongest. It's all of the Montana stuff that is just it drags it down for me. And part of that is I have to recap it, and that's yeah, a little taxing. Mm. Uh, so I'll say 7 out of 10 death rattles. Aww. How about your character of the episode, Laurel? I've been waffling back and forth on that during this whole recording. Um, I think I'm going to go way out on a limb and say Merrick. Uh, I just, I kind of just liked that middle scene where they were hiding out in the telegraph office. And then when they were having the tea later, I just thought, he had some nice mo- moments with some characters, and I liked him. Okay. I like when he shut the blinds. Yeah. On, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. On Hugo. Carol? Yeah. I've been having a real hard time with this, because there's not a lot of anybody, it seems like. Um, I mean, Saul gets his his moment in the sun for once, and I liked him standing up to Al, but it was just that one moment, and generally, eh. Um, Al got something going. You know what? Maybe I'll go with... I hadn't thought of this before. Maybe I'll go with Silas. Oh, interesting pick. I hadn't thought about that before, because I was thinking the doc, I was thinking about all the... But everybody had these little things, and Silas came back, and he... he I liked his scene with uh, Isringhausen, and I liked his, you know, playing off from Al and, uh, and all of that. I'll go with him. That sounds good. Matt? Oh, jeez. Um, oh, jeez. Oh. oh. Uh, I'll go with um, Tom, because I feel bad for him. 
It's yeah. a, it's a pity vote. That was pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. Okay, Mel. Oh, would it be lame if I picked Richardson again? <laughs> no. <laughs> Richardson was pretty great. He was awesome. I love him. He was the highlight of the episode for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna pick Richardson. <laughs> you know what? Every episode he shows up in, I might end up picking him. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> All right. I consider myself warned. Okay. Um, this one is a really tough one to pick a pick a character for. Because it is spread pretty thin. Uh, I really liked Silas, though. That was an interesting pick. But I kind of had my heart set on uh, Seth Bullock. Because I loved when he encouraged Martha to speak to their child. Like, she needed comfort and he was there for her. And how he started talking to William as though he was the boy's actual father. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm so proud of your, you know, how you took care of your mother and all that. Oh, it was... It was very tender, and it was a, good to see that side of his character. So I'm going to mm-hmm. say Seth Bullock. Yep. Yep. Good choice. All right. Laurel, do you have any quotes for us? I do. This one, DB to Andy Crane. 50 cents a night for clergy, $6 if they set up for dice in your room. <laughs> <laughs> and can I do another one? You have to wait. Okay. I can do that too? Because I'm going to have Mel go next. Oh, why me? <laughs> um, any turn here, come get me at the Chez Ami. I'll be operating on a fucking whale. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Matt? I'm just trying to find it here. Okay. Avoid looking left as you exit if idolatry offends you. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. Carol? Merrick pleases will be more often in each other's company. When given to utterance of that type, consider drinking. Mine is an exchange between Hugo and Silas of, in my least favorite scene, and yet it's my quote of the episode. (laughs) Gentlemen, we are men of experience. Self-interest is immutable, but its dictates very daily. You talk like you take it up the ass. I do not, my friend Adams, take it up the ass. (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, Laurel, what is your second quote? This is Al to Saul. Oh, Jesus Christ, show me the secret grip that proves my regret and let's be about our fucking business. <laughs> <laughs> Any other quotes? Yes. Yes. I'd punch that cocksucker in the balls before I cup him for comfort. <laughs> <laughs> I love. I just love that she said that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've got a, a Jane quote when she finds Tom in the alley. Just because I'm looking for a bottle, I might have just. Dis- misplaced during my drinking days does not mean if I find a bottle that I'm going to fucking drink it. Jesus Christ! (laughs) (laughs) I I also like this exchange between Joni and Leon. Hey, Joni. No chance, Leon. (laughs) (laughs) He was asking for sex? Is that right? Of all the times. Of all the times to proposition. Yeah. From that scene with Andy Crane and EB, I like when Andy says, I came last year to hustle dice, took sick with plague. I minister now in lead. How's the new racket pay? Yeah, that was funny. Any other quotes? No. I have one more. Okay. Walcott, I am a sinner that does not expect forgiveness, but I am not a government official. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like that one too. Yeah. I like when Walcott can be kind of reflective like self-reflective yeah yeah so my last quote uh is from martha she says rest now william we'll rest and rise together 
Okay, uh, in two weeks we will return with episode 23, The Whores Can Come. The Whores or The Horse? The Whores. Oh. The Whores Can Come. W-H-O-R-S. Yes. Is, is that C- Come? Oh, How no. do you spell that? <laughs> <laughs> How do you spell that? <laughs> Which word? <laughs> Which word am I spelling first? That last word. <laughs> is C-O-M-E-S. No. No C-O-M-E-X? S. No S. I was going to say. No, there's no S. There's no S. Whores Can Come X. What? I mean... Well, I think it's uh, still like kind of like a a punny kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be a punny thing. I think. I think. Uh, I think after the event of like everyone getting so depressed, everyone's just gonna like revel in like orgies and craziness. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's gonna be some stand-up comedians. <laughs> okay. Like, laugh a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Some this some debauchery and some stand-up comedy. <laughs> I assume Joni's going to uh, replenish her supplies. Oh, okay. And I'm guessing that quote might be, I mean, if if they've started a thing where they actually have the name of the episode in the dialogue, then I'm guessing that Cy will be the one to say it. Okay, that was going to be our miscellaneous prediction, was who was going to say the the title. Assuming that the title gets said, because it may not, but yeah. if the title it is said, I think it is, then who's going to say it? And Carol says Sai. I say Sai is going to say it. Damn. Uh, yeah, it's it? going to refer to uh, Joni bringing in um, workers. I think it's going to be Seth. He's going to invite the horse to the funeral. <laughs> The horse can come. <laughs> okay, uh, Matt, what's your prediction for what's going to happen next time? Uh, Johnny is going to make a boys' club in the treehouse. Aww. But the is horse. Is he invite Richardson? Yes, yes. All the boys are invited, but the horse can come too. <laughs> <laughs> is the titty licker going to be there? <laughs> yeah. He's the treasurer of the boys' club. And, wow, that's uh, a very organized boys club and Dan is going to say that, the quote of the episode okay. even though I think it's probably going to be Cy but it's already, he's already been showing it. <laughs> Just, I'm going through the transcript to see if it gets said I thought it Can did you search it? yeah it didn't come up oh. but I thought maybe, it, maybe it's rephrased somehow <laughs> I think that might be it because I thought I knew who said it it'll be whoever It'll just be whichever character says something that's closest to it. Okay. (laughs) The whores may approach. That, you win. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well now it's like a whole different meaning. Those those prostitutes have permission to ambulate (laughs) in this direction. (laughs) Well, we know uh, Merrick would have said that then. Yes. If if that was the title of the episode, the whores have permission to ambulate, it would be Merrick. (laughs) Hmm. Um, all right. So we will see you in two weeks for The Horse Can Come. All right. All right. Yeah, they can. Laurel, thanks for joining us this episode. <laughs> My thank pleasure. You, Laurel. Yes, thank you. Do you have any projects on the interwebs or elsewhere that you would like to promote? I'm not any specifically, but uh, you can find me at Twitter at WordBird11. 
And wh- and what what would we find if we went there? Well, hopefully more things about Deadwood because I'm st- I'm starting to do some historical research in the same time frame but different part of the country, so I might be sharing some things there. Oh, that would be great. Okay. What part of the country are you researching? Uh the it's Upper Michigan, the Upper Peninsula in the 1880s, which is kind of how I found myself my way to Deadwood. Oh, okay. In doing research. And it has oh. to do with uh, forced prostitution and mining camps, but it's a different kind of mining. Okay. So that's on the very beginnings of a project. That sounds great. Thanks. <laughs> You've got all these long pauses in between everything. <laughs> well, it's from us reading our script. This whole thing is scripted, don't you know? Right. <laughs> I I really do think it's this episode. I I really I mean I watched it just before we started this this podcast and you know everything is just about everyone waiting and there's like these long pauses and it's very down and the energy is down in it. And well, I mean this this episode damn near made Will want to kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I really think it affected the podcast a lot. Well, I think even in episodes where things are not happening, there's usually moments that are very funny. There's a lot of humorous moments. Mm-hmm. And there were some in this, but there weren't a lot. No. Because everyone is pretty upset. Yeah. And that's fine. And, and of course, the politics and stuff <laughs> is always... really, really didn't like I really don't, politics. no. It's yeah. not my favorite part of the show. So, in any case... Um, We'll see you in two weeks. Uh, until then, find us on the internet. Hooplecast.com is the website. Go on iTunes. Leave a five-star review. Go on Twitter, at Hooplecast. Search Facebook for Hooplecast so you can join our discussion group and send email to Hooplecast at gmail.com. doesn't have to be episode-specific. If it's general feedback, we'll play it at the, at the start, as long as it's good, you know. <laughs> if you tell us we're terrible, I'm not playing that. We have that power. Have you ever gotten, like, a terrible... I can't remember. Uh, well, I, if I had, I haven't said so. <laughs> well, I'm asking. Just the one that said, get rid of Mel. She's... <laughs> <laughs> She's too psychedelic. You should You should have You should have listened. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I need a bit of crazy in my life. Okay. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> Just a little. Don't, let's not go crazy. Let's not go crazy. <laughs> er, er, crazy er. All right, that's it. Fuck you. Hey! Fuck all y'all.
children prayed, the preacher preached time and mercy out of your reach. I'll fix your legs till you can't walk, I'll lock your jaw till you can't talk. I'll close your eyes till you can't see the very hair coming. Up off the fray, earth and world both have a claim. Oh, death. Oh, death, won't you spare me over to another year? Oh, death. Oh, death, won't you spare me over? Thanksgiving, those of you who are in the United States? Yeah. Yeah. I did a lot of cooking. Yeah, me you too. did. 
I did. What'd I you made cook? stuff. Uh, I made potatoes. I made a gratin potatoes Ooh. with two kinds of cheese and jalapenos. Jeez. Mm. So, so bring it back to jalapenos. That sounds it sounds- needed it needed more seasoning. Next time I do it, uh I'm gonna really up the jalapenos in the seasoning. Mm. Make it make it spicier. Sounds good. But it was it was it worked out pretty well. Uh and then I made a salad, <laughs> which was really good. What kind? Uh it had um frise, endive, uh jicama, kohlrabi, apple, and uh it was in like a mustard dressing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Also sounds lovely. And then I made two desserts. Wow. I made uh, some, I baked some pears and stuffed them with oats and brown sugar and nuts. And then I made uh, an apple pastry thing. Ooh, nice. Yes. Look at you. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I was making, I made the turkey and the dressing and the mashed potatoes and the apple pie and kind of the basics. We were one of those rare families that went out to a restaurant. Oh, yeah? I got the day off. Oh, good. Nice. I would have rather been home. So there are people that go to restaurants or like around holidays and stuff. I went to one last year on Thanksgiving. Okay, Um, so it's a thing. Well, yeah, I mean, we've, my mom is not in any condition to be doing a whole lot of stuff and my, my home situations are not really great for entertaining at this point so mm. we were thinking about restaurant this year and they're so expensive for thanksgiving that i suddenly realized that uh our fellowship we were ta- we had been talking about whether we should do thanksgiving at the fellowship or not and i said to my son well why don't we just do thanksgiving at the fellowship so we mm. organized it and, uh, we had like nine people and um, yeah it was it was really nice and Everybody brought stuff and yeah, do a little potluck or something. Yeah, that's pretty much what it was. We had three different people that were going to make salads, and because everybody thought the other person was making salad, we ended up with no salad. But <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing with potlucks—you need a little bit of organization behind. You it. don't make friends with salad. You don't make friends <laughs> with salad. Yeah, two two people you made do, cranberry like relish, and nobody <laughs> made salad. So it was it was one of those things of like ah, okay. And was this at your church? Yeah, yeah. We have some. Uh, some churches frown about uh, having like booze at your church. Uh, the case here, we're Unitarian Universalists. It's mm. fine. We, I mean, there was a question of when inevitably there's a certain number of alcoholics in any, you know, any group. Mm. But uh, one of the couples where that's the case had suggested that somebody bring wine. And so I figured, okay, we're good on that. And They're couple, okay, yeah. Yeah, a couple people brought wine and, and, uh, and. I know that at my parents' church, they never have alcohol at any of their functions, but they have like Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas dinner. It's like, how can you have dinner without wine? <laughs> yeah. I, I think. I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> actually, a fellow who's not a member, but who has just been coming to services now and then lately and, um, and, was kind of putting together a relationship with with the church. Uh, brought this really nice bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon that I was really enjoying. Nice. Mm. I yeah. think I think if you're a a recovering alcoholic, I think you kind of have to get used to the idea that other people will drink. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, I know people are trying to be sensitive when they say no alcohol, but 
I don't know. Well, I think there's certain, I think probably in a lot of cases it's liability issues. They don't want anybody mm-hmm. driving home drunk and. That's true. And that kind of thing. But, you know, nobody was, we were serving so much food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody was, nobody was drinking like a lot or anything. And they, they were the ones that brought it themselves. So nobody was really sharing. I mean, we were sharing, but, you know, um, there was an awkward moment when, the couple who um, have drinking problem um, were offered wine, and oh. and she said, "No, we're alcoholics." <laughs> <laughs> and, and the guy didn't know whether he, she was being sarcastic or what, and and so there was this awkward moment when it's like, "No, we're being I'm being quite honest here," you know. So my husband more than me, but you know it's. And then we ended up talking about the effects of alcohol on certain people and stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, it all went just fine. That's good. Yeah, we were a pretty friendly bunch. It's not, you know, it's good. not mm-hmm. a lot of awkwardness. But, yeah, it was nice. It was exhausting, though. It was just, yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah, but uh, people had a real nice time, so that was good. Good. And my mom got a... Ch- uh, one of the people was a really good pianist, and so we ended up doing a lot, singing a lot of show tunes and <laughs> stuff, and and uh, that was fun. We'll go out to eat for uh, Christmas. Are we you? Always go to, we always go to a Chinese restaurant on Christmas. Really, for Christmas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, a lot of people do that. Yeah, actually, really? I'll I be, thought it was oh, a New Year's Eve thing. It's well, a, uh, going to Chinese restaurants for Christmas for as a tradition for long, 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 long time. I was trying to tell um, Matt and Mel do this podcast called the defenders podcast. And we watched the movie vamps <laughs> um, as part as like a bonus episode. And there's this scene where Sigourney Weaver, she's a vampire goes to a Chinese restaurant and then eats all the Chinese waiters uh. and then puts on this awful, like Jewish old lady, Jewish voice. <laughs> and so I'm, try- I'm try- left to explain to Matt, Mel, Robin, and Claire don't seem to get the joke. The joke is that Jews love Chinese food because on Christmas, Jews go to Chinese restaurants. So that was the joke. Jews don't she- celebrate Christmas. That's no, why they go to Chinese they- restaurants. That's why they go to Chinese restaurants because it's the only place that's open on Christmas. So that's where they go. So that was the joke in this movie, Vamps, that uh, – but you're not Jewish. She's Jewish, therefore she likes to eat Chinese waiters. Yeah. It's... No, we're not. Well, we like to pretend we are on Christmas. Yeah. Mm. We see a movie and then we go to a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> well, I-, I always thought that was a New Year's Eve thing. Because that's what, what a lot of people around here do. They go, they order Chinese for New Year's Eve. Okay. We d- Yeah, I don't do that. Uh, last Christmas, uh, we ended up at a Chinese slash Japanese place. They've been doing, they've been having a lot of, uh, places that are both Japanese and Chinese around here the last few years. Nice. I'm not sure what that's about, but it is mm-hmm. nice to be able to get like Chinese dumplings and miso soup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you get sushi for your Christmas dinner, that'd be pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we'll pro, we'll do that and then we'll go to my, my friend's house and watch Dr. Who. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That'll be the, the evening thing. Sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
Hey guys, let's go to the ammunition plant!